When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for tuning in. A very special edition of the other side of midnight because today is what is today, Matt Blaze? St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Uh, do you know what else today is? You should know this of all people. Um. I, I know because of what we're going to play. Right. Okay. Well, so tell us. Don't <laughs> it's leave us in suspense. That's Actually, right. No, I knew that because Ellen posted about it. Oh, did she? Oh, in that's the right. Facebook that's group. That's right. And Facebook I'm like, oh, group. yeah. See, that Facebook group page. I have my um, people watching at uh, WABCradio.tv can see I have my WABC St. Patrick's Day lapel pin. Did you get one of these pins, Matt? They're I did pretty, not. They're they're out there by reception. Nobody really gave me one, but I took one. Oh, and I, I think it's okay. I mean, I, I'm I feel like I'm promoting it, and people they're giving them away for free on the website. You can request one at wabcradio.com. They're really great pins. I love all the pins we we have. I got one for Back the Blue. I got one for Lunar New Year. I got one for Women's History Month, and uh, it's really it's uh, it's a lot of fun that they do. I'm a collector of lapel pins. And my sort of motor, I've talked about this before. My sort of modus operandi is, there you go, there you go, uh, is that when somebody compliments me on a pin that I'm wearing, I take it off and give it to them. And then that happened to me last Saturday at the Blue Lives Matter Gala. Somebody complimented me on my Blue Lives Matter pin and I had to give it to them. And that could be very difficult. That's a very difficult code to live by if then then you have to replace the pin. You have to go and buy one if it's tough to find. You know, it could be tough. So I always like that. And then sometimes people will give me the lapel pin that they're wearing as well, which is uh, nice. So I don't know very much about Purim. I know um, Purim is a Jewish holiday. I've always told that it's similar. I've always been told that it's similar to Halloween. And what's nice about Purim, unlike some of the other Jewish holidays that involve fasting and and being depressed and being upset and uh, uh, and commemorating things and atoning for things. The Purim is a very celebratory holiday, and people like to have fun. There's usually a big party, a celebratory meal. That's my kind of a that's my kind of a party. Uh, they exchange. They, people get drunk. People eat food, and that's the thing with Purim uh, that you have. Purim falling on the same day as St. Patrick's Day, which for the Irish is some of the same things. 
You party down. You get drunk. You drink that green beer. You drink a little Jameson. You have some Irish soda bread, some uh, corned beef and cabbage. And do you know the last time Purim and St. Patrick's Day fell on the same day? I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking it happened either last year or a thousand years ago. Well, no, neither of those two things is correct. The joyous and, yes, slightly drunken holidays of St. Patrick's Day and Purim both fall on today, March 17th this year. The last time that those Jewish and Irish festivals fell on the same day, 1984. March 17th, 1984, and of course, the folks at Saturday Night Live had a sketch to mark the occasion. The cold open of the show, that's the first thing you see, right, when they, you know, right when they say, live from New York, it's Saturday night, you know, that's the cold open. The cold open from the March 17th, 1984 episode of Saturday Night Live, which was hosted by Billy Crystal, And has been making the rounds all over the Internet in recent weeks as it lively sends up stereotypes of these two holidays alongside the happy calendar coincidence. Now, this spot begins with Saturday Night Live cast member Mary Gross as Irish newscaster Sibian Cahill, who thinks she's live from the Green Birch Cafe when in actuality she's live from the Greenberg Cafe. And she's recapping the day's raucous St. Patrick's Day celebrations. I initially asked Philippe, who was helping us cut some audio before the show, I initially said, you know, find a minute or two of this. And I watched it. I think I said, this thing is great. we got to play the whole thing. And it's it's so fun to go back and look at these sketches from when Saturday Night Live was still fun. And funny. So this is the last time St. Patrick's Day and Purim fell on the same day, March 17th, 1984. Let me take you back in time to St. Patrick's Day and Purim, the cold open on SNL. Oh, 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 here comes a happy reveler now. How are you doing, Toots? Hello there. I would like to wish you happy Purim. Happy what? Happy Purim. Purim? Purim. This might be St. Patrick's Day to you, but to us Jewish people, this is Purim. And don't you forget it. It's a celebration of a day a long, long time ago when the Jewish people didn't get beat up again. So now we're so happy, we drink. On Purim, everybody's Jewish. Well, they say that the Irish are the lost tribe of Israel. That's right. Where where am I? <laughs> Glad you asked. You're on the juicy Cahill St. Patrick's Day wrap-up. <laughs> do, do you mean this isn't the Mill Stein Bar Mitzvah? <laughs> oh, damn. I gotta go. Oh, my. He's a bit confused, isn't he? Well, what have we here? It's a fine Irish lad and his lass, and they're all done up in the traditional Irish costume. Well, now, who are you supposed to be, my dear? Sweet Rosie O'Grady? Oh, no. um, I'm Queen Esther. (laughs) Queen Esther? 
ignore that one. I... And I'm King Ahasuerus. <laughs> That's been Purim. That's been Purim. I'm dead sure I don't know who that one is. Timothy. It's Rabbi Father Timothy, Juicy. Rabbi Father Timothy. You bet your bagel, Juicy. The Holy Mother Church just pushed me too far this time. I mean, I didn't mind being defrocked. But when they asked for their collection money back, well, that's when I decided to take me business elsewhere, if you know what I mean. So I, I applied to the local rabbi school. They gave me credit for most of my seminary courses. I, I, I just had to take a few supplemental ones. Uh, conversational Aramaic and how to remove all the flavor from cooked foods. Uh, father. That's Rabbi, Rabbi Father. I'm very confused about this Purim business. Well, that's because you're not one of the chosen folks. Oh, don't start, Father. Oh, Rabbi, 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 Rabbi Father. Well, you see, Purim is a holiday that commemorates the time when the children of Israel were driven out of the Holy Land by St. Patrick. No, wait, it was... It was the snakes that were driven out of Israel. No, out of Ireland. Hey, who's a rabbi around here? You or me? Well, it certainly isn't me. Well, I'm off, Juicy. Listen, I have to go make a speech at the JJJ. It's the Jesuits for Jews for Jesus. <laughs> and a nice, nice group of confused people. Oh, well, happy Purim Day. Same <laughs> Purim Day. No, wait, Purim Day Parade, you see. That's why you're here. No, I am here to plug my new book. I would love to everybody watching to go out and buy a copy. And don't just read a friend's copy. Buy your own. Buy several. They make great Purim gifts. Thank you, Juicy, and happy Purim. Well, happy Purim to you, Mayor. It's been quite a night here at the Green Birch Cafe. Greenberg Cafe. This is Larry Greenberg's place. Greenberg? Well, that explains much. Until next year, this is Siobhan Juicy Cahillson, Ireland for the Irish, drive safely and live from New York. It's Purim. Now, how great is that? To end the sketch with Ed Koch, who was the mayor of New York City at the time, is just wonderful. I mean, just seeing the clip of Ed and uh, playing that clip of Ed, who I knew a little bit uh, before he passed away, is just such a pleasure. You really remember what a great cheerleader he was for New York City. He was really just just terrific. So it is St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It is Purim. Happy Purim. I hope you don't party too hard. I don't know that I have much planned today. Uh, Vinny Recuglia, one of our great listeners, 
dropped off uh, some Irish soda bread and some lard bread uh, that we have in the kitchen. So hopefully everybody will avail themselves. I think there's still some of my Aunt Camille's egg salad, who I believe is half Irish. And uh, you could put some of the egg salad on Irish soda bread, although that's not usually what you do with egg salad. Usually you put butter with uh, Irish soda bread. So um, I am. Uh, I think my wife said she wanted to take our son, who is part Irish, because my wife's maiden name is O'Brien, to an Irish pub uh, tonight. So I think we're going to try and take him to his first Irish pub, although it's probably going to be a zoo. So I think we're going to go right at 5, and then I'm just going to do a quick pop-in and and maybe a pop-out. So we'll see. Uh, that's the that's the plan. But as as we've seen, the best laid plans of mice and Moranos don't always come to fruition. I'm still on the wagon for uh, for Lent, even though I know the Cardinal has given special dispensation to enjoy luxurating in whatever your vice is for the day. But uh, whatever you're whatever you're looking to do today, I hope you have fun. We're certainly going to be having a lot of great Irish programming here on 77 WABC. We're also going to have some non-Irish programming for the next four hours. It's one of those rare shows that just worked out that way where there's going to be a, a lot of guests. John P. Gluck is going to join me in about 10 minutes. John P. Gluck is somebody who was an animal researcher, was a scientist, a researcher, professor who worked with animals doing medical testing and other things. And he basically had a Saul of Tarsus moment. Basically, he became dead set against animal testing for medical purposes and other purposes, wrote a book about it, and he's become sort of a a crusader against animal testing. So we're going to get into that. I do want to discuss the the fact that Chris Cuomo is is asking for $150 million. Chris Cuomo asking for $150 million, please. Andrew Cuomo also talking about a comeback. I've been resisting talking about it, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> Katrina Vanden Heuvel, she is the, uh, she's the grand poobah over at The Nation. She'll be here in the 2 o'clock hour. It's Thursday, so we're going to do the AC report. We're going to be joined by Ray McCline who is the head of the founder of the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. I'm a big fan of boxing and a big fan of Atlantic City. So whenever you can combine the two, that's right up my alley. And a friend of mine, Andrew McKenna, who I do believe is Irish and has been a guest on the show before, former federal prosecutor, Marine veteran, Air Force veteran, who became a heroin addict and then actually a federal a bank robber and a federal prisoner. So he's somebody that's gone from being a federal prosecutor to a federal prisoner. He has a very unique perspective, and he's pretty concerned about the record that we're setting in terms of drug overdose deaths. But meantime, one story I had on my list yesterday that I didn't have a chance to get to, and I figured, okay, after I didn't get to it yesterday, I missed my opportunity. But then people were still talking about it today, including the current mayor of New York City, who is a long ways short of being Ed Koch, Eric Adams. So we got some good news on the baseball front, right? We got we we got we got the news recently that we're going to have a 162 game season. Especially good news for the Mets. We got a new manager, Buck Showalter. We got Max Scherzer. We got some other great moves. Uh, Pete Alonso looks like he's going to be healthy. We're going to have De- Degrom. We're going to have a very good pitching rotation. Uh, Taiwan Walker. I mean, it's going to be. We, we got a good team this year. I mean, again, I. I, I caution you and that I say that every year, but it's an exciting time to be a Met fan. And we got some good news on the vaccine front. They've done away with the vaccine mandates in New York City restaurants. Now, 
you'd think we'd, we'd be over this. We're ready to be done, ready to move on with normal life. But evidently, some players on the Mets and Yankees may be unable to play here in New York when the baseball season begins next month because of the city's vaccination mandate. So under this New York City regulation that was enacted on December 27th, people who perform in-person work or interact with the public in the course of business must show proof that they've received a COVID vaccine. The proof of vaccination must show that a worker is fully vaccinated has received a single-dose vaccine, or if only the first shot of a two-dose vaccine has been administered, then there must be evidence of a plan to receive the second dose. So while the mayor loosened a whole bunch of these vaccine requirements this month, he left in place the private sector mandate. Now, what sense in the world does this make? We're getting back to normal. People are going back to the office. Restaurants don't require you to be vaxxed. People have shed their masks. People aren't getting sick and dying of COVID, at least not in New York anymore. Let's do away with this nonsense. Come on. I Look, and I'm pro-vax. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I was vaccinated. I was v- boosted proudly. My wife, same thing. I, I am very pro-vaccine. I think it's one of the great achievements of the Trump administration, to be honest, and of medical science in general. But enough. Let's get back to normal life. Not this nonsense about having Mets and Yankees players not be able to play. And again, I'm somebody that I think I cover the mayor very fairly. When he does something great, I say so. When he does something idiotic, I say so. This falls into the idiotic category. He was Mayor Eric Adams asked about this yesterday. He was specifically talking about sports. Uh, I think this it was unfair for the city to state that players – who uh, come from outside the city and are not vac- vaccinated can play or on New York City sports teams are, allow- are not allowed to play. It's not with private businesses. And we're going to continue to peel back. But let's be clear. Everyone is focusing on the sports area. It's, they're focusing on one person. I'm focused on 9 million people. We are here. The NBA has a season because of Mandates, you know, they didn't have to cancel their season because we had mandates in place. We are here where our schools are open, where businesses are open. Our city is not being closed down. Our hospitals are not being overrun. This is why we're here. And so I'm not looking at one person. I'm looking at my city not closing down again, not having to deal with this crisis again. Now, think of how stupid this is. As I understand it, you can go to a Yankee game or a Met game as a fan, sit shoulder to shoulder with a whole bunch of unmasked people who may or may not be vaccinated, and that's fine. But you can't go and play in the game? If you're a Met or a Yankee, you know who can play in those games? Visiting players. So that means if the if the uh, Rockies come to town and they're playing the Mets – and the Rockies' whole team is unvaccinated, they can all play. But if the Mets are unvaccinated, they can't play. What sense does this make? How stupid is that? So if the city mandate doesn't change by the first home games for the uh, for the Mets and Yankees, it, it it's going to affect them as well. By the end of last season, the Mets were among the six teams that had not reached the league's vaccination threshold of 85%. Asked on Tuesday if he was vaccinated, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge said, quote, 
I'm so focused on just getting these first games of spring training, so I think we'll cross that bridge when the time comes. Well, we know what that means. That means no. I mean, if he's vaccinated, you just say yes. But right now, so many things could change, so I'm not really too worried about that right now. Judge was placed on the league's COVID-19-related injury list after attending the All-Star game in Denver and testing positive for the coronavirus. So um, I think this is crazy. I think they ought to let all these players play, irrespective of vaccination status, given where we are in the city right now and dealing, given where we are with COVID. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. BJ is in Queens. Hello, BJ. Well, happy St. Patty's Day to you, my uh, half-Irish friend. I'm not Irish uh, at all. Oh, well, you know, we are today. We ah, did fair enough. Jew. And, well, so that means tribe. we're Jewish today as well, right? If we want to be, why not? Exactly. Uh, Lachaim uh, and, uh, and uh, Aaron Gobra. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that was a tremendous uh, piece. You know, you could laugh once upon a time with each other and not have to worry about being uh, – uh, uh, offending people uh, now, it's uh, you know you it's, it's ridiculous. I you know I I love uh, this time of year because I get to watch I get to eat all the Irish soda bread. I get to watch The Quiet Man, my favorite 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 film, and uh, 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 Maureen O'Hara is so beautiful. Uh, you know, to me, never aged from that movie and the scene between her and John Wayne at each other. I mean, that's passion. Unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big John Wayne fan, and that's a great picture. Thank you, BJ. Happy Purim. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Jennifer's in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Frank. Um, I wanted to speak about Eric Adams and what he just said, but quickly, if I could. Um, really great interview with Manafort. And oh, thank I, you. Um, I think you are one of the best interviewers I've ever heard on the radio. Um, and um, I just think you do a great job. And that was job well done. And also, I haven't had an opportunity before, but I wanted to thank you very much. The tribute you put together, you put one together for Rush and for Joe Franklin. And I was touched by both. And um, I think you did a tremendous job. And it was it was an honor for them that you did that. And I think it was great. So thank well, you thank you that. very much. I, I obviously, I didn't know rush. I know Rush's brother and yeah. his uh, niece pretty well, but I didn't know rush personally. Whereas Joe was a, a very close friend, but thank you. Yeah. But just you, 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 the tribute to both was, was fantastic. So I thank you for that. And, um, both of those times I tried to get through, but couldn't. So, and this isn't an imposter, Jennifer, by the way, <laughs> you always, I give you a hard time. So my God, I'll think, who is this? Um, but uh, really quickly on Eric Adams, um, I, I don't understand. He's saying that everything is great and everything's open because of mandates, because of mandates, because there were vaccine mandates put in place. Frank, can you not can you not get the disease? And spread the disease while you are vaccinated? Well, yes, you can. And um, okay. and, and look, I. I, I I and your, your phone's a little screwed up at the moment, Jennifer. So I'm gonna. It's, I'm not trying to dodge any of your tough questions, which I know you're very capable of. But um, the bottom line is, you're much less likely to be hospitalized if you're vaccinated. You're much less likely to die if you're vaccinated. These vaccines have helped bring about an end to the pandemic, in my view. But let them play, like they say in Bad News Brayers. Let them play. What lo- logical sense does it make? to allow visiting players to play, but not home players. I mean, it, to me, it's just crazy. Do you know the Nets were fined $50,000 this week 
for Kyrie Irving not playing in a game, but he w- he went and watched a game in the stands and then visited the locker room to say hello to some of his buddies. I mean, this is the definition of um, this is this is like the Twilight Zone. Nobody would believe this. If you put this in a movie, they would say, oh, no, that's too far fetched. Now, uh, by the way, uh, a fella who is a left of center listener said, I heard you on Dominic Carter. I never listened to him, but I caught I happened to catch the last few minutes to hear what you'd say. Katrina Vanden Heuvel does not even remotely represent the progressive side of the Ukraine Ukraine discussion, as you told Carter. Like her husband, she's a progressive with outlier views on Russia. I hope you'll make that clear. Well, you said it, Tom. I don't necessarily agree. I think it is progressive to want a detente with Russia. I think it is progressive to want a diplomatic end to this standoff. I think it is progressive not to support a no-fly zone and by extension, World War III, I think those are all progressive things. And uh, just as Ralph Nader uh, is somebody that supports diplomacy and detente, and he's a progressive, just as uh, Aaron Maté is a left-winger who supports uh, diplomacy and detente instead of war with Russia, he's a progressive. I, I think um, I, I don't. she's an out, as much of an outlier as you're making it out to be. She's, she's definitely not in fitting with the mainstream of the American foreign policy establishment. That's certainly true. But I would not call her an outlier at all, at all. I, when I talk to individuals, I, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of support for a no-fly zone um, in terms of, uh, you know, when you uh, when they understand what the situation is. But we'll get into it next hour when uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel is here. 800 that's uh, 1-800-848-WABC. Making up for lost time is Carol in New Jersey. Happy St. Patrick's Yay. Day, Carol. Happy Purim. Oh, thank you, Frank. Thank you so much. I feel so much better. Um, well, I'm Irish, English, and Welsh. And, you know, I, I celebrate all these holidays. But I also, I think that Purim is a wonderful holiday, too. Um, on tap, what, uh, as you may guess. But, um, you know, I, I celebrate everybody's holiday. You know, I, 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 have, I have come around to that as well. And thanks, Carol. Uh, that's sort of the John Katsimatidis philosophy. He celebrates everything. Anything that there's a reason to celebrate, John celebrates. So uh, that's I've come around to that uh, that way of thinking as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to talk with John P. Glock in just a minute. Looking forward to that conversation. We have uh, John in Brooklyn calling in. Hello there, John. I emailed you yesterday, and this is a little bit of St. Patrick's Day connection. Can you identify the famous NYU alumnus who may have a St. Patrick's Day connection? A famous NYU alumnus who has a St. Patrick's Day connection. I am, uh, give me a hint, give me a hint, give me a field or something. Give me a hint. I'll give you a hint. You've interviewed his brother several times. Oh, okay. I'll say Frank McCourt then. Yes, my favorite teacher in high school. Ah, yes, Frank McCourt, a great Irishman whose memoir, Angela's Ashes, is one of the, uh, the great Memoirs of all time. And his brother, Malachi McCourt, not only a great writer, but a great radio talk show host in his own right. But let me just say this. This is what Frank would say about St. Patrick's Day. He said, 
St. Patrick was the worst thing to happen to the Irish because they would have been happier if they stayed pagan. <laughs> I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. And uh, all right, let me take a break. John P. Glock will be here. Those of you that are thinking of experimenting on animals today for St. Patrick's Day or Purim, you better think twice about it. And uh, John P. Glock is going to give you some reasons as to why that's the case. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of New Mexico, and he's uh, somebody that has looked at and spoken out about the issue of animal testing for several years now. You're going to enjoy this discussion, I think, and I think you're going to learn a little something. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Today is St. Patrick's Day, and 77 WABC is celebrating all day long. There is a lot of heritage, lots of food, green beer. We're honoring Irish Americans and the contributions they have made to our great country. Featuring celebrities, interviews, entertaining and informative talk. Happy St. Patrick's Day! Talk Radio 77 WABC. I want to tell you how I'm saving money in these tough times. Last year, your dollar lost a ton of its value. Inflation rose by almost 7% in just one month towards the end of the year. That means in 30 days, your dollar became worth 93 cents. This year, the stock market's been plummeted and your portfolio's in trouble. Inflation is a silent killer. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and can protect your family's wealth. Legacy Precious Metals is the company I trust for investing in gold and silver. Oil prices are rising. We have supply chain problems, and all of this is going to compound our inflation problems. You can trust Legacy Precious Metals because they give you unbiased information. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-932-0635 or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPM investments.com. Hey folks, Sid here. Bernie and Sid in the morning for my friends at MJ Diet. Spring is just around the corner and just because baseball season isn't starting on time, you don't have an excuse not to start your own spring training. You can get yourself back into game shape before the warmer weather because it only takes 40 days to lose a contractually guaranteed 20 to 40 plus pounds with MJ Diet. MJ Diet's program starts with bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your hair, saliva, and blood work. Then, MJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen going to help you keep the weight off the rest of your life. You'll be fully monitored to make sure you're burning fat, not just losing water. You'll also get the doctor's personal email and phone number. NJ Diet is all natural, no shots, no hormones, no prepackaged foods, and no surgery. NJ Diet is close by in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, or from home with live online video consultations. 855-5NJ-DIET. That's 855-5NJ-DIET. Or go to NJDiet.com and lose the weight for good. That's NJDiet.com. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, as you know, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, 
I am a sucker for uh, animals, and uh, I really, I don't get emotionally, I don't know, broken up over very much, but when I read a story about animal mistreatment or animal neglect, those are the stories that get to me each and every time. And I've always been very conflicted about the cause of medical testing, experimenting, and different things like that with animals, all sorts of animals. But then, you know, I would read this literature or that literature that the the value to humans of the medical testing that's done on animals is almost incalculable and has delivered breakthrough after breakthrough. And I said, okay, well, I don't like that they, uh, you know, cause animals discomfort or inject them with these deadly diseases. But if we could develop a a new drug for cancer or something that uh, causes humans a, a lot of problems, isn't it worth it? And I've always come down on the side of, yes, it is worth it. That is until I was exposed to the readings and the commentary of John P. Gluck. John P. Gluck is a professor emeritus for of psychology at the University of New Mexico and the author of the book, Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey. Uh, Mr. Gluck, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, thanks for the invitation, Frank. I I, uh, before we get into the depth of the important topic you're bringing up today, I just wanted to say that, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in New York, Elmhurst, listening to night radio. So I love this venue. So wonderful. uh, Who did you listen to back then? Do you remember? Uh, Symphony Sid uh, was was uh, was a pretty popular guy in my house. Uh, Symphony Sid, uh, the, the one and only. Um, all right, uh, how prevalent? Just so folks understand the the uh, the scope of the issue that we're talking about. Sure. Um, how prevalent is animal testing today? Well, I, let's we could look at uh, we could look at numbers of animals that find themselves in uh, uh, federally uh, supported uh, research in this country. And uh, uh, if you're talking about non-human primates, you're probably talking about seventy thousand. You talk in terms of mice and rats, you're probably and birds, uh, you're probably talking several million. But we don't really know those numbers because. Uh, Federal law, for some reason, uh, though it requires that we uh, calculate or or accumulate the evidence about how many dogs and cats and monkeys that we use, that that there's no such uh, requirement to uh, keep track of how many mice and rats and birds are used. So uh, we would, you would certainly be talking about many millions of uh, mice and rats, but I, we don't know, really know for sure. And um, uh, you know, well, and of course, you know, that's that's just talking about the United States, not talking about Europe and other other countries that. Uh, Medical research with animals is quite common. Now, I know we're going to be discussing primarily, primarily medical testing on uh, on animals, but it, it, at my house, I was at a family function over the weekend, and we were discussing, and I, I didn't know the complete extent of this and how prevalent this still was. There's a lot of other industries that make prolific use of animals for their testing, including cosmetics. So it, we're not just talking yeah. about a problem with the medical field, are we? Right. No, no, absolutely. I, you know, the uh, the Federal Drug Administration has uh, quite a few regulations that require 
uh, uh, you know, tests on, you know, on, on the uh, toxicity of various agents that might go into uh, chemicals or even like cosmetics and things of that sort that uh, might contact uh, human skin or the insides of humans if they uh, consume them. So uh, uh, studies of the toxicity of those chemicals uh, for um, for many, many years has been legally required to be tested on animals and uh, which uh, requires, uh, uh, you know, feeding animals, uh, you know, most I would say mostly uh, uh, mice and rats, uh, large doses of these chemicals to see if uh, they, they were some sort of a, a toxic reaction. And then if we see it, it's assumed that that would be the case with humans as well. So some other ch- modification of, the, of the, uh, the, the chemicals would have to take place. We're done with John P. Glock. He's the author of the book Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, A Primate Scientist's Ethical Journey. So in 2011, I know there was a lot of attention paid, and you wrote about this when you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, to a decision by uh, authorities to prohibit medical testing on chimpanzees because they concluded that chimps were the closest human relative. So what exactly led uh, to this decision to prohibit medical testing on chimps? I imagine this was years of uh, working, lobbying, activism to get this done. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, you know, chimpanzees uh, found themselves in, in uh, government labs and university labs, uh, certainly throughout the 19th, at least beginning in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, but the uh, the space race uh, brought a uh, great many chimpanzees uh, from Africa into uh, laboratories in the United States, and some of them, uh, some of the biggest laboratories right here in New Mexico, uh, where the uh, national, uh, you know, the NASA was uh, testing animals for for the uh, trying to get evidence about whether it would be safe to send humans into space. And uh, and uh, you might recall that they actually did st- uh, send two chimpanzees in, into orbit, or into orbit, and then uh, recollected them when they came down. But I think this was a this was a time when uh, I think we started seeing the importation of chimpanzees for this kind of research uh, starting to happen. Now. Um, I would also say or point out in um, 1986, the National Institutes of Health made a decision to start breeding uh, chimpanzees here in this country uh, so that the, uh, the quantity and availability of chimpanzees would be vastly increased. Mm. And, and, and one of the reasons for that was the um, assumption, belief uh, prediction, let's say, that uh, chimpanzees, as you pointed out, uh, certainly the, the closest ape uh, to, to humans in terms of their DNA and, and physiological functions, would make excellent uh, research subjects to study uh, HIV. And uh, <clears throat> so the uh, uh, so the uh, National Institutes of Health began this uh, breeding program, which produced uh, uh, a great many chimpanzees, 
And the, uh, the, the fallout of that was, was that after all of that planning, all of the breeding, it turned out the chimpanzees were not a good model to study hmm. HIV. Yeah. What, what they found when they uh, uh, transmitted that virus to uh, uh, chimpanzees was that the virus would replicate in the body of the chimp, but they didn't get AIDS. The, uh, they didn't show any indication of having had the disease or, or getting the disease of, of AIDS. So it was like this uh, terrible mistake. Were chimps, have... were chimps helpful in terms of research for other diseases or other conditions? Oh, yeah. Uh, certainly, I think uh, hepatitis B was one uh, uh, probably you, you would certainly have to indicate would be one of the uh, research successes in terms of using uh, chimpanzees, the development of treatments for uh, hepatitis B and so on, and, and some related conditions. Um, but uh, again, you know, that we had all these chimpanzees, and uh, because the assumption was, early, well, when we started breeding them for the purpose of studying HIV in them, that they, a lot of them would die from the disease. And so, uh, but that didn't happen. So the numbers of chimpanzees just kept on increasing and increasing and increasing. And there were these uh, NASA chimps from the space program, and uh, they were uh, lounging around in laboratories throughout the country. And um, then there was a move by a couple of uh, 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 federal grant people to start studying these same chimps again. And there was this uh, concern that, is that even fair? They've gone through a lot of, uh, a lot of testing. They've uh, given their best uh, to now, participate. Oh, in, the uh, space to, chimps or the HIV chimps or both? Both. Both. You know, it was the sense that, you know, they've all, they, they'd all contributed quite significantly to uh, human betterment, the development of the space program, and so on, that maybe it was... Uh, yeah, they've earned their the, right to not, have, yeah. uh, not be poked and prodded. Exactly. That was the, and so there are a number of people, uh, again, here in New Mexico, where were some of them uh, senators that uh, wrote to uh, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, and uh, objected. And uh, what happened was uh, that um, what Francis Collins did at NIH was he's, well, I'll, I'll form a committee. And we'll get people together, scientists together and so on, and ask them to make a determination about whether chimpanzees were necessary uh, to, to, to study various biomedical conditions. And so in uh, 2010, that committee was formed. And as I recall, it was, there were about 10 to 14 people on that committee, most of them researchers, and, and there was one uh, card-carrying ethicist from Johns Hopkins University uh, to help in the uh, discussion. The other thing that I think is very important to bring up here, Frank, is that when that committee was given its directive from the from the National Institutes of Health, they were said they were told, "You are not to consider the ethical issues in using chips." You're only allowed to tell us about their medical usage mm. and whether it's necessary. But don't talk to us 
about the ethics of it. Now, and the other thing was, they said, write us a letter. Don't write a report. Write us a letter. The committee refused. They, uh, the committee refused and said, look, you can't have a discussion about animals and research that are exposed to harm. Uh, with Yes, you have to talk about the physiology and the biochemistry and and so on and so forth of the animals and whether it be useful in these various diseases. But you can't leave ethical considerations out, like about the harms and the, the extent to which they would suffer and so on and so forth. It's just improper to leave that dimension out. And so the committee uh, won their argument. And so they, they produced not a letter but a, an extensive report that looked at the kinds of conditions that chimps had been used and that were being planned to be used in medical research and whether or not they were necessary. And what, uh, what the committee concluded was that, uh, by and large, chimpanzees were not necessary to study the various diseases that uh, researchers had planned. They, there were a couple they weren't sure about, but, but uh, to say 90%, 95% of all the other conditions that they considered, they, they concluded that you didn't, ha- didn't need to use chimpanzees to uh, further that research. So since then, since that 2011 ban on yeah. using chimps for medical research, from I, I know you may not be an, ex- an objective source on this question, but I'll ask it to you anyway because you're the most qualified person in this conversation. Has the cause of medical research been hindered at all without using chimpanzees to experiment on? Well, I, I, that's a super good question uh, because the question is to what extent uh, are there um, – I, I think let, – let me put it this way – since just historically, since the 19th century, uh, researchers, physiologists, people studying diseases and so on, uh, started, always started their studies by first looking at what happens in animals that get this disease. So, you know, the um, um, uh, Claude Bernard, who was a famous physiologist in France, was one of the proponents that the way to start studying diseases, you first you create an animal model, and then you learn as much as you can from the animal model, and then you go on to humans. So this is, and, and frankly, of course, that, that approach had been quite successful in the 19th and in the, uh, in the uh, 20th century successful in, in terms of finding important uh, cures for various diseases. But people also began to ask the question, is the cost of doing this work on, on animals uh, ethically appropriate? That is, are the benefits that come out of those animal studies uh, acknowledging that many of them produced a great deal of pain and distress in those animals? Was that trade-off worth it, or were there other ways, alternatives to uh, uh, studying these to the various diseases of concern without using animals? Was there a way to do that? And so, um, jumping ahead now, 
uh, starting in the like in the 1950s, uh, a couple of very important researchers in Britain wrote a book uh, about uh, humane animal treatment in laboratories. And what they said was there were three um, principles that should be followed when using animals in biomedical research. One, you should use as few animals as is necessary to get a, a scientifically valid finding. Two, you, have, you should reduce the amount of stress that the animals experience in these studies to the, to the smallest amount necessary. And third, that, we, that the researchers should always be looking for replacements. Is there a way to do this without the animal? Mr. Gluck, I, I could keep you on all night, but there's two questions I want to ask you before we run out of time. One, sure. just so folks understand your perspective, can you explain what you used to do with respect to animal research and animal testing and why you changed your, your tune on that? And two, it, even though chimps are banned, I'm wondering if you can explain how prevalent the use of experimenting on other primates that are not chimpanzees is yeah. today. Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, let me t- let me tell you just uh, you know a little bit about uh, the, uh, the the research world that I was in, and 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 uh, eventually found that I I couldn't stay in. I was trained as a, a primatologist, uh, a biomedical primatologist. Uh, um, I'm a psychologist by training, and uh, I was involved in work in the um, in the 1950s and 60s on um, uh, uh, nature versus nurture, if I may. That is looking at what are the most important dimensions that lead to adequate development in a, in a living being. And so we were doing studies uh, uh, in laboratories, and I was involved in those studies, uh, looking at what was the most important factors that led to proper development. Was it, was it all built in? in terms of genes and, and uh, the way the body came into this world, or was the experiences that uh, beings had, uh, were they, was that significant in modifying and creating the developmental process that we see uh, as an individual matures? Now, this may seem like, are, are we, were we really having this question? But it was it really was a very powerful question in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 1970s. So I was involved in doing research uh, initially as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, um, uh, looking at what happens when you take uh, non-human primates, and we were using uh, rhesus monkeys. These were monkeys that came from Asia. Um, and we were we were manipulating what their life experiences were, whether they had a lot of stimulation, uh, enrichment, lots of experiences, and then we compared them to animals where those kinds of experiences were limited, and or one might even say isolated from social experience, and we were comparing the uh, outcomes, the behavioral outcomes, as a consequence of that. And um, uh, it's probably no surprise to you or to your audience that when you take a complex animal 
like a rhesus monkey and you deprive it from uh, having a um, sensory experience and experience with other other beings of its species where it can learn how to carry on its life uh, to be a parent uh, and have a place in a group uh, that when you restrict those kinds of experiences, the animals are horribly distorted when they come out of that experience. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, Mr. Gluck, we actually have to uh, end it there, but I, I do encourage people to check out your book and uh, to, uh, you know, pay attention to the work that you're that you're doing. I, I think it's so important. Again, the book is called Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals, a, a primate scientist ethical right. journey. Thank you very much, sir. Frank, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800 848 That's 1 800 848 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Singing Electric Avenue. That was before electric cars were as, I don't know, in fashion as they are now. I, You know, Eddie Grant, I love this song. I'm going to see if we can get Eddie Grant on this show. He strikes me. I'm going to put him on our would-be guest list. I'm write him down. Eddie Grant, great guy, uh, from what it seems. I mean, certainly a great singer. So yesterday I was telling you about how my wife in our household is on a one-woman mission to rid our house of clutter. So much, I mean, the one thing that we have no more room for in the area that it's in is coffee mugs. So we have the, we have one drawer filled with coffee mugs and look, we're two people, but we have maybe 20, 30 coffee mugs and a lot of really neat coffee mugs. I think I have two, I have WABC mugs, I have a Guardian Angel mug, I have a Trump mug, I have a, uh, a James Garfield mug, a Teddy Roosevelt mug, uh, Idala Bertuna Cammons mug, a Monroe College mug that I really enjoy. A lot of great mugs. And also I've gotten her a lot of great mugs over the years, uh, you know, whatever. So we have a lot of mugs. <laughs> so yesterday a package comes and my wife opens the door and she said she opens the package addressed to both of us she says there's a package here with seven mugs in them i'm going to smash them all and throw them away and i said don't do it let me at least look at these mugs and i didn't order any mugs i don't know where these mugs are from so i look at it and sure enough it's photos on the mug of our son carmine and and his birthday on him it's really neat and i said see you're gonna smash your son's mug 
She said, no. All right, we'll keep that one. We'll throw a bunch of others away. So we didn't know who sent this. It was a mysterious mugging, as it were. And then lo and behold, I got this nice email from Elle who said that she sent us seven of these mugs to not only have one for ourselves, but give to grandparents and so forth. So big thank you to Ellen Metzger, a great listener and uh, a big fan of this show. Thank you. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know, I try to be intellectually honest. I do. I try to be fair. I, I really do. I really, I really do. I try to be fair to everybody. Uh, politicians that I'm not crazy about. Media professionals that I'm not too crazy about. And then every once in a while, there's just something. So let me begin with Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo, of course, was is the disgraced former anchor of CNN, who is the brother of disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo. Hello, this is Governor Andrew Cuomo. And Chris Cuomo uh, was fired from CNN for sexually harassing all sorts of people. And um, now Deadline.com is reporting that after months of legal anticipation following his firing by Jeff Zucker in December, who's also been fired. And again, he's another victim of the Cuomo's. I mean, you got every, everybody around these guys is in trouble. So Chris Cuomo has launched the opening salvo in what looks to be a protracted battle with CNN over $125 million in cash. This is a statement that his, this is a demand for arbitration filed by his attorneys. As a result of Turner, that's the parent company of CNN, as a result of Turner's indefensible choice to unceremoniously fire him, Cuomo has been damaged in countless ways. Cuomo has had his journalistic integrity unjustifiably smeared. Can we pause right there for a second? Did you hear what this statement says? He's had his journalistic integrity unjustifiably smeared. Now, I didn't care for Christopher Cuomo's show, Chris Cuomo's show, but I recognize a lot of people did. It was one of the more popular shows on CNN during the week. Fine. Okay. You like it. Can you really call what he was doing journalism? What he was doing was, I mean, he was spouting his opinion for an hour. He was bringing out giant Q-tips and yucking it up with his brother while his brother was a political and media rock star, not, not answering a challenging question. That's not journalism. So I don't know what his lawyers are talking about. When they say his journalistic integrity was unjustifiably smeared. So let me continue and try 
to not interrupt myself as I read you what this arbitration demand says. Cuomo has had his journalistic integrity unjustifiably smeared, making it difficult, if not impossible, for Cuomo to find similar work in the future and damaging him in amounts exceeding $125 million. $125 million. Please. Please. That includes not only the remaining salary owed under the agreement, but future wages lost as a result of CNN's effort to destroy his reputation in violation of the agreement. Uh, Cuomo now seeks to recover the full measure of his damages against Turner and CNN. Give me a break. Give me a break. So this $125 million breaks down into consequential damages, consequential damages of no less than $110 million out of the alleged Turner and CNN's breach of the express terms of the agreement. The additional $15 million is essentially what Cuomo and his attorneys say remained due to him under his contract when he was terminated effective immediately. Uh, what a loser this guy is. I mean, really. You talk about someone who um, is lucky to have ever been on television, someone who, if he had a different last name and a brother and uncle, excuse me, a brother and a father that were not governor of the state of New York, this guy would be nowhere. This guy would be a used car salesman somewhere. And no, no disrespect to used car salesmen. He'd be an ambulance chasing attorney, you know, out on Long Island. No disrespect to Long Islanders. But, I mean, can't you look at Chris Cuomo and say that's exactly what this guy would be doing? Come on. $125 million. You know, if this guy gets $125 million, then I give up. I'm going to I'm just going to get my father to run for governor and then my brother to run for governor. And I'm just going to start sexually harassing women like crazy. I've taken a break from it for a few years, but that's it. I'm going to start sexually harassing women like crazy, just like Chris Cuomo. Uh, again, I, I'm being I'm being flippant. Uh, I'm, I realize that uh, a lot of people get a bad rap when it comes to sexual harassment, but uh, a lot of the controversy involving Chris Cuomo had not nothing to do with Chris Cu- with uh, sexual harassment. It had to do with while he was a supposed journalist counseling his brother on a PR strategy. And basically quarterbacking the PR strategy. So we'll see. Um, but for them to say his journalistic integrity was smeared, I mean, it's it defies it defies logic. Just so stupid. Now, the other Chris Cuomo is not the other only Cuomo making news. If you want to comment on Chris Cuomo, you're welcome to 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Andrew Cuomo according to a report, is considering running for governor. Now, this I love is, yogurt, and I'm going to eat more than my share of yogurt. That's one issue the governor and I do agree upon. I'm a big fan of Greek yogurt as well, especially the yogurt made here in New York. But the governor, I had thought, and it looked like he was going to run for attorney general because he had, uh, you know, something like $16 million remaining in his campaign account, has a high degree of name recognition, and he has been, in his view, vindicated by a lot of prosecutors around the state. And it would have been an opportunity not only for him to restart from his old job, attorney general, but 
to go after the person that he perceives as having wronged him. But according to uh, the sources that spoke to CNBC, he's considering running against his own lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul. And he's been speaking with supporters about running against his lieutenant governor. He's been polling just four points behind Hochul in a primary. So Rich, as a party, who's Cuomo's spokesperson, still being paid by Andrew Cuomo, told CNBC that the governor has yet to indicate to supporters whether he intends to run. I guarantee you right now, Cuomo is thinking about what he's going to do next. You know what's not on the table for him? Not doing anything in politics. I guarantee he's thinking about, do I run for attorney general? Do I run for governor? I thought it was very interesting this past week, uh, this announcement this week, that he's going to be speaking at State Senator Ruben Diaz's church, Reverend Ruben Diaz, former councilman, former state senator. And it's clear that Cuomo's first comeback speech That was before a black church as well. And it's clear that Andrew Cuomo views his role, uh, his redemption in the minds of the public as coming through the black community. It's interesting. I learned this from David Patterson, who said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting, during the Anthony Weiner scandal, when Anthony Weiner was running for mayor and trying to make his road through redemption, the black community, David Patterson said, again, I'm paraphrasing, I'll have him on and I'll have him say exactly what he said. But he said, the black community has been screwed so many times and they've been wronged so many times that whenever somebody falls from grace and they uh, try to make a comeback and they're persecuted by everybody, whether you're black or not, the black community immediately embraces you and is a very, very potent audience for a sort of a comeback attempt. So maybe the Andrew Cuomo calculation here is that he doesn't want to run against a black uh, statewide elected official, the only the only one there is, because remember, the Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin wasn't elected. He was appointed. Um, maybe that's the calculation here. He thinks the black community would back him in a run for governor, against a white woman, but not necessarily not necessarily against a black woman. Or maybe he just wants to be governor again. Maybe that's it. Uh, tell me how you think this plays out. 800-848-9222. Keep in mind you have Jamani Williams in the race. So I would think Jamani Williams is going to get a lot of support within the black community, at least from here in New York City. It is, it's such an interesting dynamic, and I love to watch it. I'm going to be curious to see how the whole thing plays out. This has got to be decided pretty soon because petitioning ha- is over in about another three or four, about another three or four weeks. I have to double check the deadline. But he's going to have to get a minimum of 15,000 signatures for either governor or attorney general if he wants to run for office this year. But I tell you, the gumption on these guys, the hubris, on these guys. I mean, what a pair. That's life. You really think to yourself, um, I mean, the days of public shame are kind of over. It used to be if you were publicly disgraced, that's it. You were done. Now, why would you ever resign? 
if you look at the people that look like they've made mistakes over the course of the last year, the congresswoman from California, uh, Katie Hill, looks like she shouldn't have resigned. Anthony Weiner, when he resigned from Congress, looks like he shouldn't have resigned. Obviously, he had other issues, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. But if you look at everybody else, Matt Gates, the guy has been a stone's throw from being indicted for a major scandal of some sort that involves all sorts of sexually lascivious stuff. He's not resigning, and nobody cares. <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, the uh, two impeachments. It used to be you get impeached once, you resign. Donald Trump goes through two impeachments. He doesn't resign. And you have half the country that's ready to elect him president again. And uh, you got to think maybe if Andrew, uh, the former governor of Virginia, after getting caught, uh, Ralph uh, uh, Northam, after getting caught in blackface and everything else, doesn't resign. Nobody cares. Who cares? If he lieutenant governor in Virginia Justin Fairfax, sex scandal of his own. He doesn't resign. Nobody cares. Who cares? I think we're now at the point where all you have to do is stay around long enough for another story to become the big story. Uh, Whether it's COVID, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's something else. But I I don't know where Chris Cuomo gets off asking for $125 million. Uh, We'll talk with Katrina Vandenhuvel. Uh, in about five minutes, she's the the edit, editorial director of the Nation, a brilliant woman, and uh, she she's one of the nation's leading progressives, meaning the magazine, the Nation. She's uh, the the Nation. If you're not familiar with it, is a progressive publication. But I find that uh, what she's been writing on Ukraine, I largely agree with. Speaking of Ellen Metzger, who was behind my mystery mugging yesterday, she writes in the Facebook group. You should set up a GoFundMe page for the Cuomo brothers. Maybe we will do that. If Chris Cuomo can't get his $125 million, maybe we'll set up a GoFundMe for Chris Cuomo. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world where Chris Cuomo doesn't have $125 million. I mean, that's just madness. I still work on going to work on the GoFundMe for Curtis to pay back all the people that he ripped off. The guy, Stu, who he didn't give the $2,000 back. The poor guy, uh, the other fella, who we don't have the audio of at the moment, who paid for a beret and never got one. We're going to do a GoFundMe for Curtis and then for Chris Cuomo. Maybe we'll do one together. So we'll try and raise $125 million, $125 million, $125 million can go to Chris Cuomo. Uh 2000 can go to that guy, Stu, so Curtis can return his contribution, and $42 can go to buy a beret that that other fellow, who unfortunately we don't have the audio of at the moment, uh, never, never got. Bob is in Woodbridge. Hello, Bob. You're in. You're going to contribute to my Chris Cuomo relief fund, won't you? Of course. All right. Uh, Janine Pirro is a criminal and a fraud. Uh, read the Janine machine. Fugazi is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi. Hey, Frank. Hey, check this out. I'm black, right? I got a brother whose name is Patrick, right? Yeah. I got a brother that's named Patrick. And not too many blacks are named Patrick, right? So me and my other brother and sister used to tease him a little bit. 20 years later, my sister told me the story. When my mother was having him, she wanted a girl. She didn't want to hear nothing about a boy. Then he came out, and she refused to name him. An Irish nurse named him. 
True story. I, 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 I believe it. I believe it, Fugazi. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 848-9222. You want to email me, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We're going to get to uh, Katrina Vanden in just a minute. And, uh, you know, we'll take your calls on a wide variety of issues. You know, I'm just reading Talkers Magazine. Talkers is a, an industry publication. Uh, and I'm reading, this is what it says in the Talkers News Notes newsletter from this week. New York City talk radio host Mark Simone tells Talkers Magazine that his 10 a.m. to noon program on whatever station it's on has set a new ratings record, getting the largest total audience of any radio station in New York, beating all of the 85 other stations. The only talk show to do that in this century. Well, please. Now, and then he goes on, goes on and on. Now, so basically what they did, from what it looks like, is they just reprinted an email that Mark sent to the head of talkers bragging about his ratings. Now, I don't want to brag here, but I will. So Mark... He, you know, he's doing very well. God bless him. Six, uh, whatever share, six, six point seven share. We're doing a 17.8 share. Now, I don't want to be petty here, but I mean, does that mean I should write to talkers and say, well, you know, if you think that 6.7 share is something, you should take a look at our 7.8 share. I mean, 17.8 share. Wow. And again, I recognize middays are a different ball game than overnights, but it's just like, I don't want to do that. Because it sounds so, it sounds so, I don't know, it sounds so lame. I used to laugh sometimes when I'd be in an event and I'd wait for politicians. I'd see politicians waiting um, to get their picture taken and with an award rather than just go right up to the, uh, rather than just go right up to the podium and start speaking. And I just thought it came across as so cheesy and so... I don't know, campy. And I, so I hate to play that game, but the the fact of the matter is when you don't do that, it's people like like Mark who do play that game that then get written about as having these great ratings, whereas no one's writing about our ratings. Thankfully, John Katsimatidis has taken an, a full-page ad out in the New York Post promoting the terrific ratings that both Curtis and I have. So I don't know. I'm I'm not going to write. I mean, Ma- Michael Harrison. I think he's actually supposed to be on the show tomorrow. Actually, so may- maybe I'll I'll mention it gently in conversation with him. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's really low rent as far as I'm concerned. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Katrina Vandenhuvel from the Nation joins me straight ahead. Staten Island is a serious problem. W-A-B-C. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, our next guest's ears have probably been ringing for the last three weeks because repeatedly you've probably heard me say again and again that there are so few voices in the media that are 
speaking out about what I consider to be a sensible course in terms of ending this horrible disaster in Russia and Ukraine. And one of those voices happens to be Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Not only is she the editorial director and publisher of The Nation, but she happens to be uh, the widow of my very favorite scholar on Russian affairs, a gentleman that I have learned more from and have found myself rereading so many of his articles and his books over the course of the last month, uh, the great Professor Stephen Cohen. It is a real pleasure to welcome back to the radio the one and only Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Katrina, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on. So give me your overall view of the Ukraine situation, how we got here and where we're going. So some history. I mean, I would date it back uh, not so much to 1997 NATO expansion or even 1991 when there was, was, you know, the view that Gorbachev, then the Soviet leader, was betrayed because there was NATO expansion um, beyond one inch eastward out of Germany. But um, I think 2007 was important when Putin spoke at the Munich Security Conference and spoke at the height of the Iraq War and said this is no longer a unipolar world. And I think for many American policymakers in the establishment, this was a shock because Russia had long been on its knees, certainly during the 90s when Yeltsin was leader. And so Russia was back. And what did that mean? The next year, George W. Bush's administration moved up you know, expansion to Ukraine and Georgia. And I think that was a pivotal moment. The uh, epicenter of the Cold War, new or old, had moved from Berlin to the borders of Russia in the last years. And I think that needs to be understood. You can understand, but I think you still, it's important that I oppose the Iraq war. I oppose the illegal invasion of Ukraine. And I think it has been brutally carried out, but there is a history um, that has to be understood. And Ukraine in so many ways, and I say this without uh, in any way, um, how to put it, Ukraine is an independent, sovereign country, but it has also been in a civil war over these last years. And the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass, has been um, Russian-speaking, more allied with Russia, uh, which didn't mean that Russian fighters should be coming in. But there has been, you know, 14,000, 15,000 casualties in the east, Ukrainians, and those committed by former Ukraine President Poroshenko and to an extent Zelensky with anti-terrorism forces. Anyway, there's a long history here that predates. I will say people I work with, like Ambassador Matlock, who has studied, Reagan's ambassador to the Soviet Union, studied Russia for more than 60 years. People were in shock the night of the Russian invasion. They did think that the troops, Russian troops, were there for leverage, for bluffing, maybe move in to the east slightly. But now you're in a position where it's really all-out war, and how we stop it is so critical. I think today was an important day we can talk about Zelensky, but also that negotiations seem to be underway. And there are parameters for a negotiated settlement. So I think that's critical. I think that diplomacy, the ceasefire, ceasefire just for human costs, for the humanitarian costs, so critical, not to reward Russia, but to assist the Ukrainian people at this stage with reconstruction and finding a way to an independent sovereign country through diplomacy. Now, if you look at the framework for 
an agreement that uh, Putin yes. and the Russians have laid out. I mean, it looks very similar to the uh, the Minsk Accords yes. that uh, would have given Russia control of Crimea. It would have had the two Donbass republics be independent and sort of Russian-leaning client states, and it would have had Ukraine wanting to be a part of NATO. Now, I've said a couple of times since we've known about this, that's probably where we're going to end up anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. Doesn't it make sense to kind of get there now through diplomacy rather than see a lot of people lose their lives on both sides and a lot of Ukrainians lose their homes. And I've been pushed back on that issue by a lot of listeners who say that by doing that, by giving Putin exactly what he says he wants after he invades a sovereign country, it's rewarding uh, an authoritarian dictator who has no respect for international law. How do you uh, deal with a question like that, Katrina? You know, it's a very important question, but I do believe that um, we're looking at two nuclear armed powers. And I don't, you know, there are new concepts of warfare. I don't, you know, I'm sure you've followed this, but both on the U.S. and Russian side, this idea that if conventional weapons are not, quote, working, there is an escalatory theory toward tactical whatever nuclear weapons. I um no one knows what Putin thinks, and I, I think all of that talk is not helpful. But I do think the Crimea, the um, Minsk Accords, which have been in place since 2015 and were supported by the U.N. and the EU, endorsed by, have a real um, force to them. And I think at this stage, you know, do we well, this may change, but we're not going to send in men and women. We are going to send in troops with this uh, weapons, 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 lots of money today, this week have been for weapons. The moral calculus there is painful to look at Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians and their country being no longer maybe bombed by the barbaric Russian forces, but by their own, you know, their own battle in the country. And so I think to continue to equip with weapons may well lead to a blunder even more dangerous. And I think Crimea is out of play, but the importance of independent, sovereign Ukraine, independent, sovereign Ukraine, boundaries enforced, a neutral country as Sweden or Austria with a healthy possibility of a democracy and a market economy, I think is important. And I think is you're right when you said you spoke of what may now be the outcome with some changes which could have avoided this. I don't believe this is the appeasement moment. I think it's a combination of World War One and World War Two, and there's some misfiring history lessons being lifted up. But it's very much like a World War One too, in the battles, the street battles, the trenches, and World War Two. Not even that, because there were no nuclear forces. I think that really has to be at the front of our mind and not dismissed as a talking point, a Russian talking point. It's a reality which many experts are very deeply worried about, a miscalculation, a blunder. What if Russia goes into Poland, which is a horrific idea? I think they were testing a few days ago. But you could see NATO invoke charter, the Charter Article 5. They're not going to do that now. There's more sense of giving weapons, 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 so Ukrainians fight each other. Now, maybe one doesn't deny Ukrainian uh you know, the, the desire, but I think it's an immoral calculus. 
On Wednesday morning, uh, President Zelensky spoke to Congress. He er, invoked September 11th. He invoked Pearl Harbor. He invoked Martin Luther King, a whole bunch of American icons to get uh, the U.S. to try and do more. What did you think of Zelensky's remarks? Well, he's risen as a hero in this country and in his country and in other places. He's an interesting figure. He came in uh, after the chocolate oligarch Poroshenko as the anti-corruption fighter. And that hasn't gone that well, but it's, you know, he's, he's stood up. He's become the Churchill of Ukraine. Um, I think his speech was masterful, pulling on every, you know, string as well as the video he showed. But in the end, what he asked for was more military equipment, including, though this may change, the idea of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which is a military solution or not solution to the problem, more weapons, um, and the jets may well come. Uh, I think the no-fly zone has been uh, rejected pretty heartily. Uh, so I, I think um, he spoke masterfully, but I think at the same time, Frank, he's also gesturing, as he has over these last weeks, that he's ready for a compromise. He's ready to postpone or not show interest in NATO expansion. So there are different signals being given, but I think uh, he's one of the very few foreign leaders who's spoken in, though it wasn't in a uh, joint session, but it was to the entire Congress, which is an important measure of where he stands in the view of our political figures. I think the money being thrown, I don't, you know, it's it's anything except sending American men and women or other NATO forces into Ukraine. And so the idea of just having exited Afghanistan and all the weapons that are left there, you want to assist the Ukrainians, but is a way to find an independent and sovereign state at this point more urgent than more weapons? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you alluded to the issue of the uh, of Poland and the Polish jets. Uh, a yes. lot of people say, even folks that aren't in favor of setting up a no-fly zone, that we should help facilitate the transfer of these uh, Polish jets to the Ukrainian military so that they have a, a fighting a, ch- a fighting chance against the Russians and continuing this resistance. What do you think about that idea of uh, helping facilitate this jet transfer from Poland? Well, there are clearly issues with it because I think the American the government has worried that in doing so it might uh, trigger um, more f- fighting with the Russians. And I, I think that is a concern with the no-fly zone, et cetera, but that they would be breaching some uh, boundary. I think to get more jets in there, you're going to have an even more brutal, bloody war. You, it's painful to watch a people be attacked. But is the answer now to find a way to dial down, to build, rebuild the country? I mean, the Russians and their oligarchs should rebuild this country. And, you know, otherwise you're going to have displacement, as we've seen, out of Syria, millions of people, out of Iraq. We need, you know, to remember those. And the millions of people that could come out of Ukraine, that could displace and destabilize Europe in a way that we've always worried Putin had as his goal. So I I just think adding more weapons will prolong. There is a desire because it's to take vengeance. But I I think it's it's often so hard to talk against, but it's going to lead to more bloodshed, not more resolution of a horrific conflict. 
Sure. Uh, we're talking with Katrina Vanden Heuvel. She is the powerhouse yeah. behind the nation. And yeah, Russia uh, it, should, but try, I don't know if I'm that, but Russia should must withdraw its troops. I mean, there are parameters to a diplomacy that is not soft. We've forgotten the art of diplomacy, I think. There's persistent, clear, tough diplomacy that, you know, you, you, Russia withdraws its troops, commits to respecting the sovereignty of Ukraine. And I'm not naive. It will take international commitment. But there seems to be a great international commitment to, you know, NATO. So there should be a collateral commitment to enforcing these rules. It was reported. Uh, no, that's okay. It was reported on uh, on Wednesday that uh, that there was this secret CIA training program in Ukraine uh, going back, possibly as far back as 2014, to help Kiev prepare for a Russian invasion. Now, I first saw it on Yahoo, and that mm-hmm. link uh, appears to be down. So I don't know if they're taking back the oh, story. I or, read it. Uh, so I give read me it about t- an hour ago. So tell us about it. Tell us about what uh, no, what this story surprising. reported. It, what's not surprising is that uh, before this war started, the United States had shipped in close to $3 billion of weapons. We're putting in, I think, a billion this week. But if you have weapons, it's just common sense. You know, you need to have trainers. And now it's not necessarily CIA trainers, but they may be the most easily concealed. The danger there is always you get U.S. advisors, which may be in the who may be in the country. We don't know if they're on the front lines and get injured or killed. That's a real danger. Um, but I think I'm not shocked. I think that there have been there's been a lot going on in Ukraine since 2014, end of 2013. I mean, don't forget Victoria Newland. She didn't. You know, I I think there was a synergy between those protesting in in Maidan. Not all of whom were, though many were, young people seeking an end to corruption and wanting democracy. But there were also snipers, not clear uh, who sent them, maybe the extreme right, right wing nationalists. But Victoria Nuland very clearly said on her um, call that may have been taped by Russia, but a call with the ambassador to Ukraine from the United States. We're going to decide. I won't use bad language on this call, but, you know, screw the EU. We want yats. So there's been complicity involvement, and I think that has to be understood against the backdrop of this horrific war. It does not uh, condone or permit an illegal war, uh, which we've also debated in the United States. But there's an awareness when you read a story like you did today and I did before it was taken down. I didn't know that Yahoo, that uh, there has been a history, and history matters. That's for sure. That's for sure. Now, when I've tried to talk about the context of the various things, the Washington provocations of Moscow, the uh, items like NATO expansion, the historical ties that Crimea has had to Russia, and uh, the historical reasons that Russia may have to worry about an invasion coming from a uh, the direction that Ukraine lies – I am frequently accused of being a, a Kremlin a stooge yeah. or a Putin apologist. Now, um, why do you think it's so important for people to understand context to what's happening in world affairs like this? Well, there's the classic, if you don't understand the past, you're doomed to repeat in the future. And that is a cycle of warfare that could be repeated. I think history matters. It matters how conflicts end. We learn from that. And I think you also better understand the uh, hostility 
the anger that is animating, fueling this war. I think there's a real danger in this country and other countries when people try to uh, defame and smear those who ask questions. I saw we saw this just a few weeks ago. Uh, there's a very you know he's a good journalist. I think from the AP, Matt Lee. I think it's mm-hmm. bl- the AP journalist who asked the spokesperson in the Defense Department. You know, where's can you show us some evidence for these intelligence reports which were alleging, you know, uh, this and that? And um, the defense folks, the Defense Department spokesman said you're parroting Russian talking points. Right. I mean, that's that's really dangerous because. You know, I remember the press conferences before we went into Iraq. And first of all, there were no tough questions. And if there are tough questions and they get squelched by defamation, it's very unhealthy for a democracy, uh, which, you know, governments often lie. I'm not, you know, not not just our government. Russia is a master. Often in times of war, the fog of war is masterfully presented through lies. And that's a real danger, and it requires a journalism that demands accountability. I speak as a journalist, as an editor of a publication which has been called names. And, you know, Steve Cohen was called names. He, of course, had a great wealth, decades of study, of uh, travel to Russia, of working with Russians, dissidents across the spectrum. So he wasn't phased, but he always worried about a younger generation of scholars, which he was, as to how they would navigate a landscape which treated those who raised questions or did interesting work as, you know, apologists. Very unhealthy for true democracy. Well, that's for sure. And in the media, with the exception of publications like The Nation, uh, with the exception of a couple of cable news commentators, really maybe just one, uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, a few columnists on both the right and the left, the voices urging a diplomatic solution and the voices for detente seem not to be given anywhere close to equal footing as the voices that are urging getting tough with Russia or uh, focusing on the military strategy. Do you think the me- the media, the, the American media, by and large, has sort of failed in its responsibility to present both sides of this issue? I think that uh, you had in the 1970s in this country, you had a strong detente, as they called it, lobby. You, for example, on NATO expansion, there was a vigorous debate in Senators Bradley, Paul Nitza, others across the board protested NATO expansion. Today, I think there's a fusion between the political establishment in the D.C. blob, for example, and media. And there's a kind of testing of the parameters of what's possible to say. However, I I, uh, joined the board of the Quincy Institute, which founded two years ago. It's a transpartisan, as I call it, group. Andrew Basevich is the head of it. But it features, you know, people who believe that you do best, it's not isolationist, to rebuild your own home. And as you know, it's named Quincy, John Quincy Adams, not go out in search of demons. Uh, Though one needs to engage in treaties. Yeah, treaties, they're supportive of the Iran Treaty, of the climate. But I just think that is, uh, it's a part of American foreign policy and policy that has been kind of shunted aside because you have neocons and neoliberal interventionists. And I think that's what's represented in the Biden administration. And I think we do be we'd be wise to expand the parameters of how we talk about foreign policy, especially you may disagree at a moment of existential climate crisis, mm. global inequality, of pandemic, 
beyond just the military frame, which I think we fall into, and the media does too, to a large extent. What is your view of the president's decision, President Biden's decision to increase sanctions on Russia in general and the decision to prohibit imports of oil and gas from Russia? Well, on the latter piece of it, Europe is going to be much more affected. We're not as uh, tied. But I mean, we may disagree, but I think we would be in a better place if we had truly moved on a big green jobs initiative and kind of moved on renewable investment, retrofitting, energy efficiency. But we're not. We're tied. And um, there's fear, obviously, the gas prices of a recession of impact on the global economy. Uh, But I think sanctions are overused. The danger is there hasn't been much thinking about what are the alternatives to military action and sanctions are reached for very quickly. I think the danger in Russia, as it is in other key places, is that ordinary people often get hurt because of different countries. And that can turn people away from, say, America, which they know is sanctioning them. But um, it's a larger problem. But I do think it's rare that it has impacted the ones who need to be impacted. This may be a squeeze, which has we've never seen. But it, you know, is it aimed at regime change? Regime change is often very tough to, and I mean, I I don't support regime change because I think when you have people from other countries ousting a leader, which may happen, it's not sustainable for long. But in this case, there has been talk by people who follow Russia of perhaps the oligarchs who don't really have political power fusing with the what they call the Silaviki, that like security internet intelligence forces around Putin because they're so angry at a miscalculation, which it seems it was immoral, illegal, but a miscalculation that maybe Ukrainians were going to rise up, for example, in the east to support Russia, which clearly has not. We've seen a a whole bunch of multinational businesses pull out of Russia, essentially make Russia a a pariah, McDonald's, Starbucks. It's a shorter list of companies that are still willing to do business in Russia than have uh, than have pulled out. Do you think that's an effective way about bringing back a change, uh, bring about a change in Russian policy is having private businesses pull out of Russia? Well, I mean, you know, the corporate morality here is suspect when you look at some of these places and what they do with wages, living wages in this country. I don't think that has as much impact. Or doing business in countries like China, which is not exactly. No, right, or Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi, you know, there's a lot of wooing. I mean, I think the sanctions, over-sanctioning, as we talked about, dangerous. But, and China, making China and Russia the two main Folk, folk, focal points of our enmity, as is stated in the National Security Doctrine of a few years ago. But, you know, Biden and team are off in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Venezuela, which, you know, is ca- kind of playing it all ways. But I don't the, the corporate. Uh, I mean, I was there when Ma- when McDonald's first opened decades ago, and it was exciting. But, you know, part of what the sanctions in these last years have done in Russia is force them to uh rebuild domestic industries, including food and other things. So we'll see. Sanctions need to be thought hard about because, but I think all of these, you know, the weapons piece is just, I also, you know, listen, we want to help the Ukrainians, but think, I'm just thinking 
the budget of the National Health Institute, I think is I think is maybe a billion. A billion was just there has to be. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to make sense of a situation that seems senseless, that, you know, and the brutality is um, very, you know, our TV, you talked about media, the media, if it showed all the wars the way it's showing Ukraine, which I think is commendable, but we've seen war as drone warfare in these last years. We haven't seen the brutality as clearly in Iraq. Uh, and I must have missed a lot of the coverage of the Yemen war on our uh, television sets as Which, well. And I don't want to say that, you know, they shouldn't show this because they didn't show that, but let's have a different framework moving sure. forward because I think too many people are numb to nuclear threats or war because it's become a video game for many. Yeah, that uh, That's for sure. All right, you've been very generous with your time. Before I let Thank you go, you. though, I have to ask you two quick questions. One Please. has to do with uh, what the Bayonne mayor did this week and taking Uh-oh. Vladimir Putin's name off of uh, a war memorial or a, a, a memorial to the September 11th families in Bayonne, New Jersey. They left the memorial up, but they uh, covered Vladimir Putin's name. Do you think what do you think of that sort of uh, that's that sort of conduct where you um, essentially to me, it it almost is Stalinist. It's almost like. Uh, taking people out of uh, the Soviet the Politburo photos when they fall out of favor. Yeah, my, 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 our good friend did the book, The Commissars Disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a mixed – I'm involved with groups which are anti-war, anti-Russian war, like the Russian samovar. And they are being harassed, you know, tomatoes thrown at the door, other issues. And I think there's a collective – uh, punishment of Russians, which is somewhat different than your raising, but I think is wrong. And I think there's a kind of cancel culture in that. I I can't speak. I think it's in the, you know, this has happened so quickly. It's only two and a half, three weeks. Maybe it will change in Bayonne. But there is a fury. There's an anger. Do you remember Freedom Fries and what uh, happened uh, after uh, Iraq? That, I mean, that has um, I, that has uh, remind. I've thought about that every day since this sort of uh, blacklisting of anybody with a, a Russian name has begun. And that's been very hard because I know many Russians who are against the war. Good, good people. You know, the person who coined the term freedom fries, you may know this story, was Walter Jones, who was a Republican congressman from North Carolina. He went to so many funerals in his district in the first three, four months of the Iraq war that he turned against the war because it was just so painful to be with the families. So I'm just pointing out things change, but may, you know, the idea of this war, this senseless, brutal war in in this time is um, very, very hard. Well, it's uh, voices like yours that we need now more than ever. And uh, again, I, I uh, especially uh, what's happened the last month, I really miss uh, being able to speak to your husband, ask him questions, read his work and hear him on radio, see him on television. He was uh, he's really missed when it comes to crises Thank like you. this. Uh, Thank could, you for having me on and well, uh, enjoyed our talk. Thank you. I let's, hope we can do it again soon. Forward. Great. Thank you. A- absolutely. Uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel with The Nation. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You want to call in and comment on any portion of uh, the subjects that we're talking about, or including my discussion with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. A big day today because it is not only St. Patrick's Day, but it is Purim. So I'm wondering if there are any creative ways to combine... Jewish cuisine and Irish cuisine. I read this. I just finished reading this uh, this article in the Forward, which is a, a Jewish newspaper. It says um, Shamrock Tashin this year makes corned beef and cabbage hamantashen. Now I can't think of anything more disgusting than hamantashen corned beef and cabbage. But then I read it, and it actually has a guide for vegetarian corned beef cabbage. And some Guinness Shamrock Tashin, which um, is actually a little bit, uh, I don't know, once you read about it and read about the ingredients, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. So I actually, I doubt that she's going to have a chance to make this, but I just sent this to my wife in the hopes that maybe this will inspire her to make something today. I'm curious if you have any creative ideas for combining Jewish and Irish cuisine. You can give us a call, 800-848-9222. Now, Nobody was more surprised than I was that this corned beef and cabbage that um, Molly's longtime companion had been promising for weeks finally showed up today. And I got to say, I tried uh, some of this stuff and it was very good. And there was a long line of people in the kitchen waiting to try it. And uh, I must say, a well done job. He may be a day late, but... uh, Kellen is certainly not a dollar short. Matt, did you try this? I did. It was uh, excellent. Yeah. Very, very good. Had a little corned beef sandwich, a little cabbage, a little potatoes. What kind of bread did you use? Did you use the bread that Molly brought in, or did you yes. use the Vinnie Recuglia Irish soda bread? I used the bread Molly brought in. Was that a rye bread? I it believe? is a rye, it bread. A rye bread. Now, does the fact that Vinnie Recuglia is Italian rather than Irish give you pause about trusting his bread? <laughs> no. That was just the bread that was right there and already sliced and available. See, I think what we're going to do, I think what we'll do is I'm going to leave the Irish soda bread, and he also brought some lard bread, which is not exactly an Irish bread. It's just a old-school New York bread. I'm going to leave that in the kitchen because we're going to have a whole bunch of guests here today to celebrate uh, St. Patrick's Day. We have all sorts of great Irish programming with all sorts of great Irish guests, and usually there's a big show in the middle of the day in uh, in the in the Stage 77, and the kitchen is adjacent to that. So I'm going to leave the Irish soda bread here. I'm going to take home one loaf so that I can share it with my social group because it was very nice of Vinnie Recuglia to do that, and I'll leave the rest for everybody else. 800-848-9222. The other Tom in the Bronx. Hello, other Tom. Uh, Actually, you have Joe in the Bronx. Ah, uh, Joe in the Bronx. Oh, sorry to uh, upset you by discussing Purim. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it, it didn't go uh, over well on my stomach. But anyway, uh, with regard to neoconservatism, you know, in order to understand what's going on in the Ukraine and our foreign policy in general, you really have to understand who these people are. You can and you know, he did a very wonderful job at the start of the Iraq War back in 2003 when he published a article titled Who's War? And you can find it on unz.com. That's Ultra November Zulu, unz.com. And basically with regard to neoconservatism, you have to understand that post uh, the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, the neoconservatives essentially want a unipolar world. They want the United States as a single hegemon with no power to rival it. All right. And that's what that's. Uh, on that, on that note, that. Joe, thank you. Uh, Got to run. Appreciate it. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. We've got a lot of other stuff happening. The AC report coming up. And you think we should have the Olympics in New York? We'll get into it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Never forget, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So I, I don't know if you watch the show Billions. I really enjoy it. Uh, it's on Showtime. It's a great show. It uh, stars Paul Giamatti. Uh, it's got a great cast, and it's filled with a lot of other guest stars. I think I became a fan of it maybe in season two, and I, I kind of caught up late. Uh, but um, it had been highly recommended. I really enjoy it. And Paul Giamatti... He started out this show uh, – I don't want to give too much away because if you haven't seen it, I don't want to deprive you of any of the uh, plot twists that happen throughout the show. But I will just say it's well acted. It's shot really well. It's edited brilliantly. And if you're a New Yorker or if you used to be a New Yorker, I think you'll appreciate all the New Yorkness that's in this show, much like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I've, I've come to the conclusion that those are the shows that I like, shows that depict – my hometown, which happens to be New York. And Billions is loaded with New York references. I love it when they're shooting and I say, oh, I used to go to that restaurant or I used to work right up the block from there or I know where that building is. Oh, I think that's around the corner from where I work now. It's just, it's, I don't know, it's like almost like watching a home video with famous people. It's really neat. But it's also loaded with all sorts of pop cultural references. I haven't finished the most recent episode uh, yet because it takes my wife five uh, five tries to watch a whole episode of something because there's a crying baby or there's a, an imminent work deadline or there's something. But uh, I, in the first episode, not the, not the first episode, in the most recent episode of this season, the one of the main characters of this season actually quotes, uh, and he goes from quoting Theodore Roosevelt to quoting Dusty Rhodes. And it's just loaded with all sorts of, uh, pop cultural references and obscure references. And I really think that one of the producers of the show, Brian Koppelman, I really think he and I would be would be good friends. And in fact, I'm going to try and invite him on this show. Let me put that down on my list here, Brian Koppelman, because he also did a film years ago, A uh, those of you that like gambling-themed movies, and we're going to get into 
uh, the AC report as we take a look at the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame coming up in about 20 minutes. But he did a film called Rounders with um, Matt Damon and Martin Landau and Ed Norton that I just loved. And that same sort of cinematic storytelling and the same sort of references and the same sort of putting New York on film, it's present in billions. In fact, I think it might even be better executed in billions. It's all beside the point. A big part of the plot arc, and this is not giving anything away, so you could feel free to start the show from the beginning, and I'm not giving anything away. I'm not spoiling anything for you. But a big part of the plot of the most recent season of of, of Billions is an attempt by a bunch of billionaires and other community leaders to get the Olympics to New York City. So um, it got me thinking, and I've been thinking about it for now, I guess, the last five weeks since this show has been on, because it's such an integral plot point. It's gotten me thinking, would New York want the Olympics? Would you want the Olympics in your city? Whether you live in New York, Chicago, Boston, wherever, would you want the Olympics in your city? Because there was talk of bringing the Olympics to New York City. And this was a big issue by Mike Bloomberg. I think it was actually, I think the initiative was started under Rudy Giuliani, who viewed it, according to some, as an opportunity to get the Yankees a new stadium. But Mike Bloomberg was really the one that spearheaded the push for the Olympics in 2012. And I remember back in 2005 when this was hotly debated, uh, you know, hotly discussed, I remember thinking, I don't know if I'd want the Olympics in New York. And again, I'm a very proud New Yorker and a guy that would love to put New York on display for the whole world, which the Olympics certainly does. But then I think of the traffic that I deal with in New York on a regular basis. And then I imagine, oh, wait a minute, we're going to have a marathon and uh, we're going to have sprinting and we're going to have all this stuff, all this activity, athletes from all over the place, an Olympic village. Uh, Do I really want to deal with all that increased traffic? It sort of seems like more trouble than it's worth. And I did a little research as I've been sort of wondering in my brain about this stuff, about how cities have actually done financially, where, um, you know, how they fare financially, because that's got to be a big factor here. And a lot of cities, according to this report that I just read from the Council on Foreign Relations, a lot of cities don't do that well. So ultimately, New York did not get the Olympics in 2012. That went to London. But I'm sure there are a lot of New Yorkers, both billionaires, uh, titans of industry, uh, civic leaders, politicians that still want it. I'm just curious how the rank and file would feel about having the Olympics in their city. You know what I did think was a good idea? Um, And this is one of the things that first attracted me to John Katsimatidis as a as a as a political figure, not as a, a, you know, radio person. When he was running for mayor or talking about running for mayor in 2009, 
he talked about bringing the World's Fair back to New York City. Uh, New York has had two World's Fairs. One was sort of an unauthorized World's Fair in the 60s, back in 1964 in Queens, and we still have some infrastructure. And then, of course, there was another one um, many years before. I think it was back in, I want to say the 30s. Uh, Yeah, 19, yeah, late 30s. So I thought the World's Fair was was really something, but I also wonder about that. Is there and we're gonna do a future segment on the World's Fair and its history back in nineteen sixty four. But I wonder if now with places like Epcot Center, which are essentially the World's Fair every day, is there still a market for a World's Fair? So the question I'm curious about is primarily the Olympics, whether it's the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics. Would you like it in your city, wherever you happen to live? If you look at the future host cities that the International Olympic Committee has selected, they're doing Paris for the Summer Games in 2024. They're doing Milan for the 2026 Winter Games, Los Angeles for the 2028 Summer Olympics, and Brisbane for the 2032 Summer Olympics. So the earliest that we'd be able to get the Summer Olympics here in New York I guess it's 2036. Is it worth it? What do you think? 800-848-WABC. Even if there is a financial cost, maybe it's worth it to increase tourism or just to kind of get New Yorkers motivated again or uh, kind of help New York City get its groove back. What do you think? I'm sort of agnostic about it. I, You know, it was um, it was 17 years ago on Sunday. No, seven, yeah, 17 years ago on Sunday that I set the Guinness World Record for hosting a live TV talk show marathon. Now, I did a 33-hour TV talk show. Do you know how to train for doing a 33-hour TV talk show? Neither do I. So I had no idea what I was doing. In, but I, I figured, all right, it must be a good idea for me to train for this somehow. So what I did to train was I did a run-through of hosting an eight-hour show for practice where I I took eight guests and interviewed them for an hour each. Maybe it was ten guests. I don't remember. I think it was eight. And then I did two weeks later another dry run-through of 24 hours where I took 24 guests and interviewed them for an hour each. And I thought, okay, if I could do that, I could probably do the 33 hours where I have a bunch of interesting guests. And one of the guests that helped me in that first run-through in 2005, was a friend of mine named Nicole. And she wasn't anybody famous or noteworthy. Uh, She was just a friend of mine. And she was willing to help me, you know, uh, go through my training for an hour. And one of the things that we spent a great deal of time talking about was the Olympics. And she was all gung-ho for the Olympics and bringing the Olympics to New York City. I was not. I thought it was going to be a lot of hassle. I thought it was going to be a lot of money. And ultimately, I think a lot of New Yorkers agreed with me. And uh, they weren't wowed, the Olympic Committee, by New York's presentation. They didn't select us. And the folks that wanted to put a stadium on the west side for the Jets weren't necessarily able to use the Olympics as an opportunity to do that. Now, it turns out, five years later... That friend of mine was elected to the New York State Assembly. Now she's one of the best-known members of Congress in the whole country. 
uh, that was Nicole Maliotakis. Now she's in Congress, but back then she was just citizen Maliotakis. I wonder if she still feels that way about the Olympics. So tell me, give me your view. How would you feel about bringing the Olympics to your city? We have one, two, three, four, five open lines. I'm curious. Good, bad, indifferent. Where do you fall on this? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Cat uh, is in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Hello, Cat. Cat, I got you. The interview that you had with the researcher. Mm-hmm. So I happened to be in that business kind of accidentally since 2008. So I totally understand the whole issue with the animals. It's a big thing in in Boston with all the research hospitals. And I really liked his compassion. You know, initially when I got into it, I worked at a lab at the Brigham Women's Hospital that was um, dealing with uh, MS and Alzheimer's. So most of the labs that I dealt with, they only dealt with mice. So I had to account for the mice, but then I learned about the whole primate thing, and I was like, okay, I don't know how I feel about that. And sometimes there are protests locally, and they tell us they they tell us if they know there's going to be a protest. And then since then, I'm still in the business. I thought it would be like a blip on my resume, but now that I've been in the research business so long, and I've also participated as a participant myself in research. I mean, the the issue I have with the primates is like, are they not the closest things to human beings? Right. Well, that's precisely the rationale for experimenting on them, right? And at, and at least like at least we as humans, we can like have informal consent, and they don't. So I I don't like I'm I'm glad that since. Since my work at the Brigham, now at Mass, Mass, Mass General, I don't deal with any animal research. But it is it is something to consider. No doubt about it, Kat. Kat, thank you for the call and thank you for the work that you're doing. 800-848-WABC. You know, I'm just looking at this list of upcoming World's Fair cities. And, um, there, you know, there's some – Osaka is going to be hosting a World's Fair. And – Let's see. We got a couple of other cities. Uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina is hosting a World's Fair in 2023. Those are the only two scheduled. I'm wondering, maybe I can put together a group of New Yorkers. Maybe this could be sort of my cause, my claim to fame, because, you know, I've been looking for something to do to fritter away all of that excess free time I'm trying to do away with, especially now that I'm trying to raise Christopher Cuomo this uh $125 million, because I don't want to live in a world where Chris Cuomo does not have $125 million. Maybe I can organize a collection of grassroots New Yorkers to bring the World's Fair back to New York. I think that would be fun. I don't know if the public appetite is still there, though. So tell me where you come down on this. Would you want the Olympics in your city? Would you want the World's Fair in your city? Both? Neither. 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Yes, uh, I I don't believe we should have it in New York. I believe you hit on the uh, hit on it exactly. Didn't you say that all the cities that have had it in the past they don't do fair they don't fare well afterwards? Most of them, most of them don't. Right. Okay, I thought it was all, but you build a lot of infrastructure to house all the tourists, and, all that, and then you hope that this gets used afterward. And a lot of times it doesn't. You know, you build a whole bunch of infrastructure. Uh, I, I, also. Frank, don't you think the Olympics is kind of becoming a moot point? People are starting to realize in in the modern world that 
all these things in the Olympics were something from the ancient world, throwing a javelin. It's throwing a stick, throwing a <laughs> shot put. It's throwing a stone, and it's not even a competition against each other. It's like, who threw the stone the farthest? Well, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I mean, I mean, everything... It's it's and now they're putting like I don't know I don't think snowboarding should be a sport it's not skiing I don't know it's like after a point it's just like uh, an arcade you know it's just games and it's not these things don't have anything to do with it it's not really skill now those ones where they ski then they shoot and then they 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 do other things well that's pretty skillful but throwing a stone I mean people didn't this Olympics have the worst like viewing ever. That's right. Well, I, I think part of that was because they uh, people were were ticked off at uh, at China. I think that's well, part of what you saw there. I, I think so too. But between you and me, Frank, I think it's just people are starting to realize that most of these sports you watch on it are just boring. I mean, I'm watching people take a stick and jump over a, another stick. You know, a, a, a pole vaulting. Well, that was so that you could get over the walls in the ancient times of, of ancient places and, and invade them. Throwing sticks was like throwing, you know, spears. I mean, it, it was something to who could fight the best, basically, in the ancient world. And then we got to, like, making it more civilized. But basically, that's what it was, wrestling, throwing stones and sticks was a way right. of warfare. Yeah, you know? that's right, Rick. Rick, great points also. That's one vote against the Olympics. And I think that's where I come down. Would you want the Olympics in your city? Again, whether you live in New York or not, Boston, uh, Los Angeles, wherever, would you want the Olympics in your city? Or if you've been in a city like Los Angeles or London, because we do have at least one listener in London, how has it worked out when they've had the Olympics there? 800-848-WABC. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. I love New York. Everybody, happy St. Patrick's Day. And... um, I would have the Olympics here only if the athletes stay in the Eden Moore projects in the Bronx. There you, there you but go. But first, before I talk about the Olympics, um, you had the guy on with the uh, testing on animals. I just want to let everybody know the world-famous rat had died a few months ago. He was the rat in Cambodia who could sniff out landmines, and he, and he died. He didn't step on a landmine and die, but he passed away, and he can sniff them out. Yeah, I, I talked uh, about that at the time, actually. Oh, when he passed away, right? Yes. Yeah, right. I might have missed it. But um, the thing about the Olympics, right? Now, first of all, we've had Olympic trials in New York City. In 64, we had the diving trials in the story of Pool. We also had the rowing trials in Pelham Bay. And 36 in the story of Pool, again, they had the diving um, uh, trials. I believe they were just completed the pool at the time when that happened. You can't have the Olympics in New York City. First of all, you just logistically, it would be a total nightmare. We have enough traffic here. Plus, we have now more crime coming in here. That's a fact that they'll never say it, but that's a big factor, too, inside New York City. You can't have it. You could have a World's Fair, but then again, if the tourists don't want to come here because they're afraid to you know, go out at night, uh, that's not going to work out either. They've got to get the crime problem down and, and basically get the tourists coming back to New York. And you can have a World's Fair, even if it's – I don't think it's really that appealing. You know, you have so much stuff in New York City anyway. But could I just say something? Let me just finish something up. Folks, listen to me. The establishment is at it again. They're trying to scare you with us exchanging nukes with uh, Russia. That's not going to happen. I I could see an accident, an an atomic accident, like we had the Japanese 
atomic plant a few several years back, Three Mile Island, you had Chernobyl, that could happen. But an actual exchange, no. I really believe if Putin ever suggested to the, uh, the security forces inside of Russia and the generals that he wanted to use an atomic warhead and consider uh, Ukraine is right next door to Russia, so they're not going to use it on Ukraine, you would find, they would say they found Putin dead at his desk with a Bible next to him. And the reason why they would say that is that it's propaganda for the West to say, look, he had a Bible next to him to fool the West as usual. But no atomic exchange. I don't see it happening. Thank you, Steve. 800-848-WABC. JR in Brooklyn, do you want the Olympics in your hometown? No, sir. It should be going always in America to a secondary metropolis. How come? Like at, like Atlanta or another, they although they are major cities, they're not major metropolis. People think that the Olympics are a major money-generating event, which they are. But New York City, Atlanta, Chicago, we have to counterbalance all of that incoming money with police department, fire department, sanitation, uh, public transportation, all of the New York City uh, public servant you know, machine that keeps this place going on a regular basis. Nonetheless, we'd have to elevate at times 10 to 50 times that just to make sure everything runs smoothly. And it's just, it's just not worth it. All right. Well, so it's looking like so far nobody wants the Olympics here in New York. And that's one of the things I kind of felt like New Yorkers would feel that way. And that's one of the things about this season of Billions that I found a little unrealistic is that they were able to rally all sorts of public support for the Olympics. What about the World's Fair then? 800-848-9222. Michael's in Manhattan. Hello, Michael. Whoa. Oh, ouch. Okay. I'm here. Don't worry, Frank. I'm here. Um, Did you attend the 1964 World's Fair? No. Okay. You missed something. I attended it, and no one ever told me that it was unofficial. It was the most dramatic thing of my lifetime. You had exhibits, major corporations. uh, Oh, God, Kodak had an incredible exhibit. Uh, IBM, uh, GM, you saw things of the future. It was marvelous. Plus, all the countries had top-notch restaurants. It was out in the middle of Queens. They had plenty of space. Um, it was incredible. But as far as having the Olympics here, no thank you. How uh, come? You... How come? Is it because of the traffic? Is it the infrastructure expense? What is it? Well, New York City is not equipped for it. I don't know where you would put it. Uh, take over Randall's well, Island. In 2012, or... they had a whole uh, a whole plan that would incorporate all five boroughs. You're going to have the softball games in uh, in Staten Island. You're going to have the baseball games at this stadium they were going to build on the west side. You were going to have uh, the marathon in a ra- in a route that was similar to the New York Marathon. They were going to work to incorporate, I don't remember all the exhibits, but they were going to work to incorporate all five uh, stadiums. They were going to have, or all five boroughs. They were going to have something at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens. It was going to be, they were going to try and incorporate everybody. Well, my question is, and I'm sure you've done a lot of work on this. I listened to the beginning of this this segment. Um, what city has ever made money on an Olympic uh, 
on the Olympics. Well, so it's tough to know because a lot of it is you're relying upon the city themselves to be honest about their finances. Now, Sochi in Russia, obviously, is not going to be that honest. Beijing in China is obviously uh, not going to be that, uh, you know, uh, that honest. But uh, people do generally believe that Salt Lake City probably made some money on the um, on the on the Winter Games and Los Angeles in 1984, they did make money on the uh, on the Summer Games back in 1984. Um, but I, that's the exception. That's the exception. Yeah, and no offense to Staten Island, but I don't know who the heck's going to go out to Staten Island for an event. Oh please, uh, we have half a million people there. Who needs you, Michael? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Joe's in Irvington. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hello. Yeah, I was a little kid, but I was at the sixty four Worlds there, and I would like to see another one. That was the. Uh, by the way, that that was uh, Robert Moses' last project, and they oh, I know. Had just completed. Yeah, and he had just completed the. Uh, uh, what is it? The Verrazano or something like That's that. That's right. That's projects. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I was a little kid, and I'd like, I'd like to. Uh, I was gypped out of, uh, out of uh, uh, another world's fair when I got older. All right, so let, maybe we'll try and rally public support for the bringing the world's fair back to New York in 2027. I think that would be, I think that would be fun, and maybe it's a little bit less of a, uh, you know, a little bit less of a, an, obtr- an obtrusion than the Olympics would be. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Robert Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I really don't care one way or the other. I attended the World's Fair of '64. It was interesting, long, very long lines to get into the Belgian village and that sort of thing. By the way, you mentioned the 1939 World's Fair at Lake Success. You know that that there was a cameo appearance of that World's Fair in one of the very classic Rod Serling Twilight episodes. It's called The Odyssey of Flight 33. Oh, I actually, is that the one where they travel through time? Yes. Yes, I remember that one. That's right. They they come back, and when they come back, the guy says, uh, what the hell's a jet? And of course they and this you know they can't land there so this this flying around. Let me tell you the other quick reason I called you. You happened to mention that Purim is is uh, uh, being on the same day as today, St. Patrick's Day. Are you familiar with an organization called the Loyal Yiddish Sons of Aaron? No. This is an organization that's been around for quite a while. I was a well a member in the sense that. They used to have a dinner on the 17th every year by invitation only. It was not open to the public. I went for a few years. This is a wonderful group. They celebrate the Judeo-Irish connection politically, musically, culturally, and food-wise. They sing songs and tell jokes and stories in Irish and English and Yiddish and Hebrew. They always toast Robert Briscoe, the Jewish Lord Mayor of Dublin, and their menu, Frank, is incredible. Green matzo ball soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, green beer, green beer, green matzo ball soup, ice, uh, ice cream with shamrock cookies. I mean, it's the most incredible 
dinner you've ever had in your life. And while everybody is getting snockered going up and down Fifth Avenue and Third Avenue and then going in the crowded bars, uh, we had a great time for about five or six years. I went. Haven't haven't done it in, in a long time. But it is the Loyal Yiddish Sons of Aaron. In fact, the late, great Barry Farber had them on several times. And Barry, being a linguist, uh, I think in one case they sang Danny, Danny Boy in Yiddish. That is terrific. I love that. That is outstanding, Robert. Thank you for telling me. I, 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 I'm still waiting for some of these great Irish fusion recipes for somebody to bring one of those in. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, I know Margot listens to the show and uh, maybe I know she's responsible for a lot of the hosting. Maybe she'll see to it that we get some some not just Irish food, not just Jewish food, but a hybrid of Irish and Jewish food to celebrate both Purim and St. Patrick's Day. My my son has both. He, well, he has he's half Italian, uh, but he has both Irish and Jewish heritage because my wife does. So we were thinking about. Giving, I mean, he only eats baby formula at the moment, but we were thinking about putting a little green food coloring in his baby formula, and uh, we got to see. Maybe we can incorporate some sort of a, a Jewish component to that green baby formula as well. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. How you doing? So earlier you were talking about Chris Cuomo, and the point you were making is people can be disgraced, and and it doesn't. They're 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 still not prevented from having second acts in life. They still go on. And the example you brought up, one of the first you brought up was Donald Trump. Well, no, I just said uh, years ago, um, you know, you wouldn't have you know made it through uh, to one impeachment, let alone two. And Donald Trump is almost more popular, at least among Republicans, than ever. Right. That's exactly right. That's what that's what I want to talk to you about. So it's those of us for whom he's popular among. We believe those two impeachments. Sure, I get that. I get that. But there was that component of folks that believe that with Nixon as well. And uh, he still, you know, he still ended up uh, resigning. It's a fair point, though, Charlie. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about. um, Oh, uh, John Katsimatidis. Oh, my. Oh, good. Uh, The one and only the man who first put this idea in my head when he was talking about running for mayor in in 2009. John Katsimatidis is on the line. Hello there, John. How are you, Frank? You guys, you guys keep me up at night. And uh, how can I I got to go to work in the morning? What? (laughs) I'm sorry about that, John, but I guess that means we're doing something right. You are doing something right. Congratulations. Number one show in New York. This opportunity is, I've thanked you privately as well. The the real number one. Um, Frank, (laughs) uh, when I ran for mayor in 2013, you know, I love New York. And I said, uh, how can we make New York even better? In those days, uh, New York was not doing bad. But my object was, how do we make New York better? And uh, the Olympics, too many regulations uh, from the world, from whoever. You know, New York is the greatest city in the world, and we have to be the boss to run it. I was there in the 64 World's Fair. I was uh, 14 years old, 
and it was the greatest experience of my lifetime. Uh, it created, it, it expanded people's minds. Uh, and all we have to, had to do in my plan for 2015 or 2014 for World's Expo in New York. Now, in other words, I didn't give a darn uh, whether it was an official World's Fair or not an official World's Fair. And I, I, we could have called it a World's Fair. If, if people wanted to sue us for calling it a World's Fair, <laughs> we would have called it a World's Expo, you know, and got, uh, got the 20 largest companies uh, in, in New York that do business with New York that, that want exposure in New York. Uh, and gotten uh, maybe another 15 or 20 countries that want exposure to build their tourism business and create a whole set of buildings and a whole set of expos. Uh, You know, let's say General Electric wanted to expose uh, their new uh, airplanes or or, uh, their, their new cameras or their new... Uh, whatever, but it was it's, it was very doable when you make a partnership between the corporations, expose their all their products and all the good stuff they're doing uh, in that period of time, and their vision, their vision of the future, and also a partnership with ten, fifteen, twenty countries. Do you think that it shows what what a great place to come visit uh, by just showing what it's like? Now, you mentioned your candidacy in 2013. I remember talking you talking about it even four years prior when you were thinking about running in 2009 before they, you know, paid off the city council to undo term limits. Do you think that it could still work today? Like, If we as a city, maybe us as a radio station being the leader of it, if we were to kind of galvanize public support for a, a World's Fair or a World's Expo in 2027, do you think it could still work today? It's leadership, Frank. You need one strong leader to say, first of all, you know, we, we fought COVID. I think we won. I think it's over with. Uh, number two, crime. We got to get rid of the crime in the streets. Uh, I was on the uh, the uh, phone last night, the five o'clock show, with the chief of the detectives, uh, and uh, uh, he caught they caught the new uh, people in charge of killing those people that killed the uh, homeless, and it's and he agreed. There's eight and a half million people in the city of New York, and there's three thousand criminals, Frank. Mm. They're creating 95% of the crime. So before we before we start talking about a World's Fair or, or that kind of a thing, we need to get our, our hands around the crime situation first. People have to feel safe walking around. It's got to be – it was – New York City was the safest city in, in the world, in the country. And these these crazy people up in Albany that decided to create a – a cancel culture, a woke culture, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to call it, want to take. They want to. They 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 want to have three thousand criminals. Uh, uh, they take care of them instead of worrying about eight and a half million New Yorkers. And uh, kind of 
You know, what kind of crap is that? No, I mean, it's, 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 it's absolutely bogus. And uh, that's why I think a lot of our listeners respond to kind of the common sense approach that you and a lot of the expert guests and the newsmakers that you bring on every day at 5 p.m. and every Sunday morning from 8 to 10 uh, that you bring, uh, bring to light on that subject. Well, so, John, I guess, so the final word is, go ahead. Step three would be we get one person in charge uh, of gathering up 20 corporations. It could be 17. It could be 30 that want to expose uh, their shareholders, their their customers into what their thoughts are of the future. And that's very doable. And then another person in charge of gathering up countries that want to expose all New Yorkers, eight and a half million, and all visitors to New York. We used to have 55, 60 million visitors there, Frank, and to to what their countries are like, what Sweden is like, what Norway is like, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And New York would be be great again. Yeah, I like the sound of that, John. So uh, if we can wrap our hands around the crime issue and if we get some real leadership from uh, corporate leaders and government leaders, you would be all in favor of the World's Fair, not so much the Olympics, it sounds like. No, the Olympics, too much international regulations uh, uh, about, like uh, our other friend that was on the phone before, you know, can you throw a stick further than this guy? (laughs) I mean, you know... I like the word entertainment. Right, right. And I, and I like the word, what uh, me and you love Star Trek, we love uh, uh, Ra- uh, Shatner, uh, about having our minds expand, expansion of the mind to, to new things that people don't even think of. And let me tell you something, being a high school kid going to the 64 World's Fair, my mind expanded. The General Motors Pavilion was phenomenal. The General Electric Pavilion was phenomenal. The Ford Pavilion was phenomenal. Uh, well, it, it's, it sounds like it inspired you to do some pretty great things. Uh, lastly, John, before we have to go to break, I can't, while I have you on the phone, can't avoid picking your brain on the oil issue. You're in the oil business as well. I've seen you on Fox Business. I've seen you on Channel 5. I heard you on the radio certainly talking about inflation and oil prices. Is there any hope? I paid something like, with a credit card in Manhattan, something like $6.60 per gallon yesterday, so I didn't run out of gas while driving home. Do you see any relief in sight? Only if uh, President Biden and Washington, the Democrats, because, and and I don't play Democratic, I'm like you, Frank, I don't play Democratic or Republican politics. Uh, But right now, they're... The Democratic Party, under the leadership of President Biden, is holding the American industry uh, hostage. And they refuse to allow America to produce uh, more uh, oil, in other words, to, because right now we're paying Russia, we're paying OPEC, we're paying Saudi Arabia $100 a barrel, 105 110 Temporarily, it's down to 95, but it could go back up mm. again. Mm. Uh, and you know what we're doing? We're making Americans poorer, and we're making them richer. And one of the Democratic friends, I have a lot of Democratic friends, said to me, well, if we raise the price of, of gasoline high enough, people will want electric cars. 
Well, I'm going to tell you something else when, uh, my son said to me. Do we worry about surviving the next 10, 20, or 30 years or worry about that we might do some climate damage 100 years from now or 200 years from now? Let me tell you something. We're not going to be around in the United States as we know it if we start listening to these well, and the, and the shame of it is, it's not you that's going to have a hard time uh, getting to work every day if uh, the price son, of gas. Son, right, exactly. My grandson's to come. Exactly. And that's who's going to suffer. It's not going to be me and you, yeah, Frank. Exactly. John, thank you. It is always a treat to talk with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling in. Needless to say, you're always welcome. God bless you. Uh, the you. great John Katsimatidis. Hear him every day at 5 p.m. here on the uh, at, on WABC, most listened to talk station in the nation. Thanks largely to the changes that John has made. I happen to be one of those changes. Humbly, I'll say that. And uh, every Sunday morning from 8 to 10, where he lets me tag along for the first half hour. AC Report coming up next. We're going to combine two of my favorite things, Atlantic City and boxing. AC Report straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77. WABC. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty And meet me tonight in Atlantic Well, that's right, it's time for our weekly look at Monopoly City One of the world's most interesting cities, Atlantic City, New Jersey And today, we get to combine two of my great passions Atlantic City and boxing uh, That's right, very, very pleased to be joined this week By the president and founder of the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame Ray McCline Ray, thanks so much for getting up early for us uh, Frank, thank you for having me on. Good morning to you. So, Ray, uh, I gotta, I'm embarrassed that up until last year, when you guys had your induction in August, I am a boxing fan and a frequent visitor to Atlantic City. I didn't even know that there was an Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. Tell me about uh, what, what made you start this Hall of Fame, and uh, what made you think that Atlantic City needed a Boxing Hall of Fame? Well, uh, again, thank you uh, for having me on, and... Uh, yeah, this is uh, this year will be our sixth year uh, for the uh, celebrating the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame, uh, in which we do an annual uh, weekend uh, weekend long celebration. Uh, we started it in uh, 2014. We did our first uh, event in 2017 uh, with a great inaugural class that included Mike Tyson and Don King and a tour, the great uh, and uh, late. Uh, Toro Gotti and so many others uh, that played a role in establishing Atlantic City 
as a recognizable known boxing destination around the world. Uh, but it, it for me, it started in 2010. I it had attended the uh, New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame. Um, and while we, I was there in Garfield uh, at the uh, inauguration uh, event, you know, I drove from Atlantic City to Garfield, and it was all close to about a two-hour, 15-minute drive. And, you know, I was like, wow, why, why, isn't, why isn't this event being held in Atlantic City, uh, where a lot of the fights took place at uh, casinos? Uh, Atlantic City was at that point of, uh, you know, that downward turn, mm. you know, as well. And I just thought it was a great opportunity. So when I left that evening, uh, my mission was to either help bring the New Jersey Box Hall of Fame Fame event to Atlantic City or established the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. And of course, we uh, took the latter and established the Atlantic City Boxing Hall. Now, of Fame. Atlantic City has a very rich tradition um, when it comes to boxing. You alluded to some of those great Tyson fights that were put on by Don King, many of which were at former Trump properties. Give us Correct. a few other highlights beyond those Tyson fights that have to do with Atlantic City and its incredible history when it comes to boxing. Well, obviously, the uh, trilogy, uh, the two uh, fights in the trilogy with Mickey Ward and, and again, Arturo Gotti, you know, you had all the heavyweights uh, that were, you know, doing the Tyson reign and there thereafter, you know, Lennox Lewis and Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield, uh, George Foreman, you know, uh, those, they, you know, they, they had to make their names in Atlantic City and they established themselves in Atlantic City. Uh, as well with Bernard Hopkins and uh, Oscar De La Hoya and the great Roberto Duran and Iran Barkley from the Bronx, New York. They had one of the, one of the classic, uh, most classic fights ever in Atlantic City in the, in the blizzard. You know, so you had so many great fighters that came through here, you know, some regional uh, from the New York and Philadelphia area, also international. And national, you know, you had people from all over the world that would come here uh, because Lang City was such a magnet uh, to boxing. And and you alluded to it. You mentioned Don King, uh, but also uh, former President Donald Trump, you know, played a major role in Atlantic City in the early 80s uh, and, you know, and through uh, the 90s with making Atlantic City known as a boxing destination uh, with his properties and the, and the amount of money. Uh, that was put out to attract these great fighters to come here. So Atlantic City has a rich history, and it actually predates uh, the 80s. It goes back to the early, you know, turn of the century, you know, where, you know, you, some of the early fights that took place in Atlantic City on the boardwalk at uh, Wall Stream Arena and also uh, at the um, the pier, the steel pier, and so many other places where you had the, the – you know, organized crime had their first one of the first you know official meetings uh, in Atlantic City, and it was done around boxing. Mm. You know? I didn't know that. So, I knew about yeah. the organized crime aspect of it. I didn't yeah. know that it was uh, around boxing. By the way, if people want to learn more about the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame, they can go to acbhof dot com. Now, uh, Ray, where do people go within Atlantic City if they want to see the Boxing Hall of Fame? Is it actually? I know it, it, is it actually a physical presence that people can visit? Actually, uh, we have a pop-up um, at the historic Claret Hotel. When I, I was listening to the teaser uh, coming in, uh, and it was talking uh, about you know uh, the Monopoly board, and which I, I love to embrace uh, with Atlantic City because I think that is something that the city itself doesn't embrace enough. Uh, that Atlantic City is the Monopoly board, and I think it's it's very 
uh, it's intriguing to people and also like very enlightening when they realize uh, that they're walking or they're moving around the city on the uh, Monopoly board. But the Claridge Hotel sits on Park Place. It's one of the historic, you know, properties in Atlantic City, and that was one of the most desired pieces uh, property uh, when you played in the Monopoly game. Uh, so we did our first four, five years, uh, four years. I'm sorry, uh, at the historic Claridge. Uh, property on Park Place, uh, and in their art gallery there, we had a display, uh, and, you know, that was pretty much year-round, uh, and we uh, we're you know I, I still have it, you know, there. But you can go into that art gallery, and you can see all the you know posters and you know different uh, artifacts that we have uh, that's there, uh, you know, for people to you get a chance to see, you know, some of the uh, previous fights that took place, and also some of the uh, current. Uh, fights that took place on the screens uh, that we have there as well, uh, the projectors and also, you know, we try to make sure that we engage, you know, uh, you know, some of the old, you know, as well as some of the new technology as well. So you'll see that this year with our event at Hard Rock, where we will uh, have um, an exhibit. And uh, and tell us when the event is again at the Hard Rock for this year. Yeah, it's going to be October 7th, 8th and 9th, which is, you know, uh, you know, a great weekend of events, uh, with, especially with Hard Rock uh, Hotel and Casino being a, a part of the event this year. Can people get uh, tickets we, on the website, or are they not available yet? They, they will be available uh, April. Great. Uh, we okay. are. Well, you know, I, we're really excited about it because it's going to mix entertainment. It's going to uh, it's going to you know attract the uh, boxing enthusiasts, the uh, the casual fan, and also the curious fan. You know, but you're going to have you know some unbelievable events and i can't speak on them just yet uh but when we announce uh the things that are going to be going on i think people uh, from all likes are going to come and want to be a part of this weekend well that is outstanding i am going to be i'm going to be there and uh, hopefully we can do something in person good luck to you and uh, i love what you're doing and uh, i hope everybody uh, comes to that event in october and goes and checks out the pop-up now but as it stands now can folks go to the claridge and see this or do that we have to wait a little bit closer to october we're we're gonna have to uh, actually we normally have it going uh, six months out to the event so right around april late april should be able to go into the Claridge and see the pop-up. And also we're going to have, again, on-site, uh, you know, uh, leading up to the uh, the event uh, at Hard Rock. And then we're currently working on a permanent location. Uh, we've been in, you know, communications uh, with the city and uh, various, you know, other organizations. And we're pretty close to uh, having a permanent location, uh, you know, in Atlantic City. Outstanding. Uh, again, and we are going to embrace, you know, uh, the new technology that's right. out there. As well, you know, as far as uh, VR and uh, a reality, and you will see that at this this year's event. Right, we're wishing you the best of luck. Uh, please keep us posted. I'll, I'll see you October seventh, if not before. Okay, uh, Frank. Thank you again for this uh, opportunity and great show. And look forward to seeing you in person uh, here uh, in Atlantic City. A hundred percent, absolutely. If you want to again learn more about the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame. A-C-B-O-F, dot com. That's A-C-B-O-F dot com. I will be there October 7th through uh, the 9th. Maybe we could try and do the show from there that Friday morning. That would be a lot of fun. And get some old boxers, get some Atlantic City people. That would be fun. Uh, 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Pretty little angel eyes. Pretty little angel eyes. 
This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, I am the stepfather of three cats, and uh, two of them have pet insurance. One of them did not qualify for pet insurance because he has a pre-existing condition of diabetes, or as Wilford Brimley would call it, diabetes. And um, he doesn't get pet insurance. Pet insurance is important. It covers a lot of vet visits and a lot of other things. A lot of stuff it doesn't cover. My wife informs me yesterday that her pet insurance premiums for these two cats is going up about 70% this year. And we tried to appeal. We tried to get some sort of explanation. And apparently there's nothing that can be done. But my wife said, you know what would happen if this was humans? I said, have you followed the stories that I've been doing? We're seeing all sorts of inflation. We're seeing medical uh, price gouging. And she said, not 70% in one year. She's right about that. So if you guys have pet insurance for your pets, take a look. I'm curious if you're being similarly gouged. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'll tell you, um, one of the many areas where my wife and I part company is how to handle drop-in guests. Right now, some context, because yes, I am capable of offering context and background on more than just the Russia question. Is, you know, years ago, my dad grew up in Brooklyn. My mother grew up in Brooklyn. And I always heard from both of them um, who both lived near a lot of family, both close family and extended, that their whole lives would be defined by people popping in unexpectedly, no expectation of uh, calling or making plans. It was just an expectation that people were welcome to come in anytime. And that was not just. Extended to family. That was extended to friends, neighbors, etc., etc. And I know Sebastian Maniscalco uh, does a whole bit about this, about how uh, company used to be something that people would welcome. Uh, You'd have special cake just for company when company would come. And then somewhere along the line, though, that changed. And one of the many areas that my wife and I differ on is whether or not we like unexpected visitors. My philosophy is I love it. I love it. You 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 give me an unexpected surprise visitor at any time, 
I love it. Welcome them with open arms, and I'm ready to entertain them and host them. Um, last Sunday, Minority Leader Joe Borelli did send me an SMS text message and said, hey, you up for ping pong? My answer, absolutely. So Joe comes over, the doorbell rings. A look of panic almost washes over my wife's face. And she's half panic, half fear. Who is that? I said, it's Joe Borelli. He said, did you know he was coming? I said, yes. I said, well, how about telling me? Why? I, said, I, I, didn't think, uh, I didn't think you'd mind. I don't mind, but I'd like you to tell me. Fine. And that is a big issue with her. She always likes notice of whenever a guest is going to pop by. She's fine with entertaining. She's fine with having people over. She just wants a little advanced notice. Now, I have a couple of questions for you. One, do you fall into my category or my wife's category? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Do you like a drop-in guest? Or do you think people should call first, uh, ask to come by? What do you think? 800-848-9222. I also think there's certain people that should be, like Kramer, for instance, should always be on the you're always welcome list. So Ooh, yes. should you drop everything? For drop-in guests, friend or foe, invited or unannounced, up whether you want to or not. So when someone arrives at your door without an invitation, how do you react? Are you happy like I am? Are you unhappy like my wife is? Or are you somewhere in between? 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 9222. I came across this article in doing research for this segment from January 19th, 1987. Relationships drop ins, colon, visitors or invaders. This was from 1987, more than 30 years ago, and people were already debating this, talking about this, and it seemed like the world had already changed from the 50s and 60s, significantly. So um, my question, in addition to whether you like a a pop-in visitor or not, or if you are the pop-in visitor or not, is what changed? I imagine part of it is a function of technology. It's a lot easier to call. It's a lot easier to text message. Uh, and there's sort of an expectation that now that it's so easy to communicate, that there's an expectation that you're going to let people know before you pop in. So it chronicles this 1987 article in the style section of the New York Times. Karen Marsing, a Chicago purchasing agent, planned to spend a recent evening working on an oil painting, but she never had a chance to pursue her hobby because an old friend stopped by. I had mixed emotions about her unexpected visit. On the one hand, I was glad to see my friend. But on the other, I resented the intrusion because I have a limited amount of free time to work on my art. I also needed some time home alone after all the entertaining I did during the Christmas holidays. And this is experts back in 1987. Experts say that like Ms. Marsing, 
many people are ambivalent about visits by friends and relatives who drop by with little or no warning. My Uncle Steve is one of these guys. My Uncle Steve is a just-pop-in kind of a guy. He's not a call, usually, before he comes in. Kind of a guy. He's a, let me drive by, let me see if your car's there or if anybody's home. And if somebody is, then he will, uh, you know, ring the door. If you're busy, I mean, he's not offended. Uh, but I'm curious where you fall on this. 800-848-9222. And again, it's interesting to me how much things are the same as they were back in 1987. Dr. Samuel Klagsburn, psychiatric director in hospital in Katona. Unexpected visits can harm relationships. Guests may feel slighted if not entertained in the way they consider appropriate, while hosts may feel used by the guests uh, because the guests are forcing them to give up their time or invading their turf. Now, again, I think if someone... Uh, pops in from Chicago or Los Angeles or some somebody from out of town, then that's a different situation than if someone happens to live in the neighborhood or they live super close by and they said, oh, well, let me wander over to Frank and Rachel's house and see what they're up to. What say you? 800-848-9222. 800-848-WABC. Are you somebody that likes a surprise pop-in? As a host, do you like to do a surprise pop-in as a visitor? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Joe is in Bensonhurst. Hello there, Joe. Yeah, I missed you about the World's Fair. I got some interesting little tidbits for you. Because I was I was a chauffeur in the World's Fair. I have an invitation an embossed invitation from uh, from the World's Fair, which I didn't use. I kept it. But uh, a very interesting place to to work. I was a chauffeur. First I was a messenger, then I became a chauffeur for the Chief of Protocol, which was very interesting. And uh, a, a great guy I worked for named Gates Davidson, a, million, a multimillionaire, big fan, oh, oh, the whole family. And... Uh, he was a great guy. Great. I, 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 I can't get in touch with him for some reason, even with all these uh, apps. But in any event, I have a couple of interesting facts for you. Uh, let me see where I can start. First of all, catch your own from president. Well, he actually wasn't born in this country. He can't. Well, we'll draft him. I, I, that would be nice. Uh, how about I'd love it if he started with something like governor or U.S. Senate. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, I think that would be a, a hoot. He'd certainly have my vote. By the way, if you uh, didn't have an opportunity to hear John when he called into our show about an hour ago, you could hear him on the Bernie and Sid show. I just got the rundown for the Bernie and Sid show, and he's going to be on at 7.05 this morning. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Manhattan. Hello, Bill. Hello. Hi. 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 Um, yes, I am. Um, re- in relation to um, the caller just before uh, Mr. Casamathutis, Mac- Mr. like an hour ago, <laughs> we're talking about the World's Fair. And I wanted to correct the caller at that time, just before Mr. Casamathutis called. He said uh, because of a Twilight Zone uh, thing called the Flight of the Odyssey of Flight 33, he said it was in um, Lake Success. Well, I saw that episode, too, several times. Uh, John Anderson was the pilot, by the way. <laughs> 
um, uh, that actually was incorrect. It was pointed out in the TV reviews of that program the next day. It was not in late success. It was in the very same spot as the 64-65 World's Fair. Right, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. That's interesting. In fact, my mother... Uh, as a teenage girl, remembers walking to that site. She had a season pass to go to the World's Fair. She was like 14 or something at the time. And um, in my very building in Manhattan, on the on the uh, on the floor of the lobby, there's the logo of the 1939 World's Fair, namely the Trilon and Perisphere. That was the symbol of that. And they kept that, I think, in the 64-65 one. And one more thing, <laughs> um, I went to both. 64 and 65, it was it was held over for another year. And there was a 7-Up pavilion that I went to. If you paid to go through that pavilion, they gave you a special color-coded plastic or cardboard cup to get un- unlimited refills of 7-Up for the whole day. <laughs> so I kept, I crushed it up, kept it very carefully not to create leaks in it. The next year, when that World's Fair came around again. I brought that cup with me. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. fun. That's fun, Bill. Good for you. I'm glad you got to get your money's worth out of that soda. And believe me, I'd like to see if somehow I can merge my two campaigns, one for the World's Fair and uh, one for getting tab restored. Now that I've already won on locking the clock and having permanent daylight savings time, I just have to bring back tab. I got ranked choice voting. I got permanent daylight saving time. Now I just need to bring back tab and we'll be golden and then get the world's fair. And then the only thing I'll have to worry about is somehow raising the money to get Chris Cuomo his $125 million. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. So uh, my opinion is there are certain people, like you said, like my best friend, he, he calls me if I'm home. He says, what are you doing? I say, I'm home. says, uh, he Swing by, like, sure. I just unlocked the back door for him. Comes right in. But my uncle will just show up with his whole family without even a text message. And it's like, that's not cool, you know? So I guess it depends who it is, like you said. Yeah, well, no doubt about it, Corey. In general, though, are are you ever a guy that pops in somewhere, uh, you know, without prior notice? No, I, I, I really, no, I won't do that unless some kind of emergency, but no. No, see, and see, what do you think changed from 40 or 50 years ago when people used to do that all the time to now it's almost considered rude to do? I think it's the fact that we all have these cell phones. Right. And we're expected to always be available. And if you're coming, you should call. Because you have a phone on you. Back in the day, if I, you know, you, I lived in Queens and I was in Brooklyn, you'd have to go stop at a payphone or something, or something like this, you know, and you couldn't just pick, take the phone and call. Well, that's fair, Corey. As I said, I think a lot of it does have to do with technology. I'm curious if there's anybody out there like me that really enjoys a surprise pop-in guest. So far, it seems most folks don't. Most folks are in the Rachel camp. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Where do you come down on the issue of surprise visitors, unexpected visitors to your home? 800-848-WABC. You can also weigh in on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan or uh, join the Facebook group. Uh, Just search M-O-R-A-N-O radio 
fans and haters. And, of course, you can always email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Ellen is in Philadelphia. Hello, Ellen. Hello, Frank. Yeah, if somebody, yeah, I, 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 like, I like people, most of them. Some, some people, I don't. But if somebody just shows up unexpectedly, I'm an insomniac anyway. You know, that's why, you know, you, you keep me entertained all night long. And if somebody showed up unexpectedly, I keep a bag of curlers and throw it at him oh. or her. <laughs> Just leave me alone. I'm tired. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Well, I, I, look, Ellen, I guess you're in the majority. So far, uh, you know, Jesse Ventura wrote a book years ago while he was governor. I think it was his second or third book. And I still have it. He signed it to me, which is very nice. He wrote, Do I Stand Alone? And it's a great book, and it's all about a, a, the independent political movement and a bunch of other things. But I'm starting to wonder if when it comes to welcoming surprise visitors, am I the only one? Do I stand alone? Hello. Am I the only person that really enjoys a pop-in from an unexpected guest? To me, I almost prefer a pop-in from an unexpected guest as opposed to someone that's scheduled a visit. It's new. It's exciting. It's like the Royal Rumble. You never know who's going to come down the pike next. It's exciting. 800-848-WABC. And presumably, look, hopefully you're getting visits from people you like, not people that are going to be a big, uh, you know, a big uh, burden to entertain. Mark in Westchester, what say you? Yes, sir, Frank. I enjoy the pop-in. I recently had one with a very dear friend of mine that I went to high school with that heard my uh, Facebook messages about my divorce and et cetera and popped up at 3 a.m. And I was glad I was home. And we had a couple pops and a couple cigarettes together, and I enjoyed it as much as I would uh, anything else in my life. It was a great visit. See, I, a very dear friend. I think that's great. I absolutely love that. And that's exactly the kind of, uh, the, the kind of sentiment and the kind of emotions that I enjoy when there's a pop-in visitor. I'm all in favor, and I've had to dial this back a little bit because of Rachel. Thanks for the call, Mark. I'm all in favor of an open-door policy. I love people dropping by at any time. I think it's so fun. I think it's so exciting. I worked um, for a few years for my Uncle Joe, who had a shoe repair shop. And then I worked for one summer for my Uncle Steve, who has an auto body shop. And I thought it was so interesting to just never know who was coming in next, what customers, what people were walking by and were going to pop in and, uh, and, and just make their presence heard, neighbors, other business owners. I thought it was so much fun. And I really think it's that sense of community that's been lost. Um, it's that sense of neighborhood that just doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's a real shame. And I'd like to do whatever I can to bring it back by trying to bring back the pop-in. 800-848-WABC. I mean, is there anybody that better personifies the pop-in than Kramer on that terrific television program, Seinfeld? Yeah. It's Elaine. Come on. Elaine? Yeah. This person does not believe in telephones, does she? She likes the pop-in. I've told her how I hate the pop-in. He likes the pop-in, too. Just pop in now. 
I'm a big popping guy. <laughs> about Kramer? Oh, huge popping guy. <laughs> so there you have it. I got to tell you, I'm in. I'm in the same camp as Jerry. I love the pop-in folks. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk with Andrew McKenna in uh, just a couple of minutes. He is going to uh, chat a little bit about the problems with drug addiction in this country. We're seeing record number, record numbers of people die of drug overdoses, and uh, he's not too happy about it. He works for a he's had an interesting story we've talked to him before he's the author of a book called sheer madness and he has uh covered the pop in uh, the uh the problems with uh with drugs and tried to help a lot of people kick their drug addiction over the years meantime we have a first timer We're sorry. Faye in florida calling in for the very first time hello Faye. Uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, my name is Faye. I live in New York, but I've been working in Florida now for a couple of years. And I want you to know that, I, first of all, I've never called into a show in my life. Wow. And I literally wake up in the middle of the night to listen to your show. I well, it's so wonderful. You. Thank you. Yeah, 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 I do. And tonight and tomorrow, well, actually, last night and today is the Jewish holiday of Purim. And I just want to wish your listeners and everyone a happy Purim. Thank you, Faye. I wish you a happy Purim and a happy St. Patrick's Day. Same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you, Faye. Enjoy Florida. When are you coming back to New York? Um, I'm actually coming back next week. For um, I'll stay through Passover, and then I'll come back to Florida. Wonderful. Well, you're welcome to pop in at my house anytime, Faye. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I don't like unexpected visits. Yeah, I, again, I am in the super minority. It's Jerry Seinfeld and me at this point, Faye. Thank you for calling. Call again. Don't make this your last time. Mike is in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. How are you? Uh, you, I was, know, I was, fine. you talked about people dropping in. I, have, I was in a service with my friend Dennis, and uh, I wrote him letters I was going to come to Germany. He was in Germany. And I showed up at his door, and I rang the bell, and his wife opened the door and said, what the blank are you doing here? That's, that's really dropping in. That's for sure. So they didn't like, uh, at least the, the, in that particular instance, they didn't like the pop Say again? In. They didn't like the pop-in there. No, I said, that's a topic. I said I dropped into his house in Germany. Yeah, I understand. So they didn't like it, I'm asking. I can't, I can't hear with too well. All right. Well, it's my loss, I suppose, Mike. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Russell is in Monmouth. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Well, I guess um, it depends on who you ask. Okay. Um, I'm the pop-in. I'm the, well, I'm the popper. Wonderful. I lo- I'm the popper also. Yeah. I'm the popper right. and the poppy. <laughs> um, me and a bunch of my friends, we moved, for, you know, we, we made the, the, the move from Brooklyn straight out to Jersey. We skipped over Staten Island. And uh, as you could stand outside your house all day and you won't know anybody that drives by. And then since we started doing this, the popping is great. Unexpected. And it's nice. It reminds us of, you know, growing up when we were kids. Wonderful. Now, I love everything about this. Now, why do you think the pop-in has worked so well for you guys? Is it that um, is it that nostalgia aspect of it that you alluded to? Or is it the is it the community that you're building out there in Jersey? What is it? I, I think it's the nostalgia because we all grew up the same way. Yeah. You know, I would stay at home on a Saturday and any of my father's friends would, would pop in, you know, unexpectedly. And it was nice, you know, and even during the week at night. 
Um, and we, we kind of carried that over. We started doing it once, twice, and now it's a, a thing that, that's been ongoing. I think that's great. So, Russell, so you and I are on the same page exactly. And I think we're on the same page for pretty much the same reasons. How do we get society to catch up with where we are at this point and, and want to embrace bringing back the unexpected visit? Oh, boy. <laughs> I have no idea. I guess if if no if you didn't grow up with it, you probably don't realize how you know how enjoyable it, it could be. You know, um, you might be right. In fact, you probably are. I think. And thanks for the call, Russell. It's great. You're welcome to pop in at my house anytime. I think actually, and it's funny. I uh, I uh, I know the fellow that made that documentary a few years ago. It's called I think it's called Evocator about Morton Downey Jr. I recommend it. And I went to a screening of that documentary about 10 years ago at the Tribeca Film Festival. And um, they had a Q&A with the filmmakers after the, after the film. And one person asked, well, do young people that really don't know Morton Downey Jr., do they like this movie? Because um, they really can't relate to the show. They don't know the the characters that were on it for the most part and don't know a lot of the people there. And the filmmaker said something that I, I found so interesting, and I remember it 10 years later. He said, because young people are not used to seeing television like this and this kind of behavior on television, they actually like it more than some of the people who remember the Morton Downey Jr. show. Which I thought was so interesting. Now, what Russell said, I think, because we've had now probably two generations, maybe a generation and a half, of people that have grown up without unexpected visitors. We're now in an era, like uh, Rachel, like others, where you're expected to call and let people know you're coming or get permission to come. Because of that, we have a whole generation of people that don't know what it's like to have unexpected visitors. And I think for the same reasons that young people embrace that Morton Downey Jr. show, that because these young folks don't know what it's like to experience the joy of unexpected visitors, that maybe they'll like it even more than folks like Russell and me that did. 800-848-9222. Kathy's in the East Village. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Frank. Back in the late 70s, uh, during the 80s, plus, plus, there was a community in northern New Jersey that had these cabins that you would rent. You know, small cabins, lots of doors, lots of windows. But we were all friends, so we all knew each other. So they were always, they were always popping in. loved popping in and popping out and visiting. It was like an open-door visiting kind of place. It was, you know, great. I loved it. But here, not so much in New York City, but in those cabins, we had we had really good time up here popping in. Well, yeah, and why do you think that ended, Kathy? Well, because uh, the New Jersey Audubon Society kind of took over the place, and they stopped renting those cabins, and that's why it ended for me. And then really since, I haven't seen these people. They were my best friends, but 
we all, we all moved around and, uh, you know, I stayed, stayed in one place here and, uh, yeah, it, there's no pop-ins now, but, uh, you know, that's why it ended for me. Interestingly enough. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah. Hi, Frank. You know, I, I was pondering on the issue and you said you think it has to do with technology and it does. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, we used to have, uh, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, my block was like a little village. Everybody popped in on each other. In fact, See, I love that. Ye- I love that. Yeah, and, and everybody received each other. I used to pop in uh, on this guy a few blo- a few houses away. He's now a, a very busy, accomplished English professor. And I suspect if I did it now, I'd be turned away uh, quite quickly. And um, it, he was always accepting. He was a private individual, but always accepting. And I think the reason is because we ha- because technology has filled our need mm. for contact with the outside world. There's a, there's, a, there's a valid need to have outside contact, and that need has been filled many times over, but it's not a satisfactory uh, fulfillment. Okay? So is... we're, really de- we're really depriving ourselves, and you are reaching out for the gusto of life and to be congratulated for it. Well, that's uh, – first of all, thank you, Larry. I don't know if I'm to be congratulated, but I agree. I think that's a very astute analysis on your part, that the role of the stranger – visit, not the stranger, but the unexpected visitor has been replaced by Facebook – by constant SMS text messages, by Instagram, by Twitter, by email. I think that's a very interesting observation that Larry makes. I really do. And I think that's a shame. And I am not throwing in the towel on this because we've seen everything that's old is new again, right? Uh, we've seen vinyl records make a record comeback. You know what had a, a record? Last year, it's not just vinyl records. Last year was the first year since 2004 that there was growth in the sale of CDs, compact discs, first year in 18 years. So people are embracing, in some respects, the traditions of yesteryear. And I'm hoping that will include Tab. I'm hoping that will include the Automat. And I'm hoping it will include the Unexpected Visitor. All right, we're going to do the $1,000 Minute. If you want to try and win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, 800-848-WABC. We have some special St. Patrick's Day questions. If you don't know who St. Patrick's Day is or what ethnic group this celebrates, don't call. Um, If you do, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. And then Andrew McKenna is going to be here, Deputy Director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Can I fix you fellas some drinks and sandwiches? W-A-B-C. Well, you're walking through a city street. You could be in Peru. And you hear a distant calling and you know it's meant for you. Then you drop what you are doing. And you join the merry mob And before you know just where you are You're in an Irish pub They've got one in Honolulu They've got one in Moscow too They've got four of them missing This is The Other Side of Midnight I'm Frank Morano Time for one lucky listener To have the opportunity to uh, test their wits And uh, do it quickly 
In uh, 60 seconds, if they can answer 10 trivia questions, they will be the proud recipients of $1,000. We've had several winners before, and it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. And let's meet today's contestant, Francis from Rigo Park. Hello, Francis. Hello there. How are you? How you doing? I'm doing well, Francis. Uh, what what brings you on, uh, on the radio this early in the morning at 4.30? Are you always up this early? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned about uh, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. I can't get too much sleep. It's very upsetting. Well, it's, uh, it's a shame uh, what's happening in Ukraine, but I guess we're the beneficiaries of your inability to sleep because of it and that you have to listen to us. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> All right, Francis. Okay, uh, so you're going to have 60 seconds. The timer is going to stop. Uh, is going to start after I ask the first question. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started. What famous New York City cathedral is named for Saint Patrick? Saint Patrick's Cathedral. What color does the line in Fifth Avenue get painted on Saint Patrick's Day? Green. In Irish cuisine, what vegetable is commonly served with corned beef? Cabbage. Who was the first Catholic president of the United States? John F. Kennedy. What is the name of Apple Computer's popular smartphone? The Apple. No, no, it's not the Apple. It is uh, is the iPhone. The iPhone. Unfortunately, Francis. Well, I'm sorry. I want to wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day and a happy Purim anyway. I'm going to put you on hold. Molly will take your uh, your information. She did well at the St. Patrick's Day questions. I was wondering, in, you know, we got up to question number six there, which is, oh, no, question number five, which is not bad. So uh, if you didn't get an opportunity to try today, then try again tomorrow. All right. Uh, very, very pleased to welcome a good friend of mine, Andrew McKenna. He is uh, not only the author of the book Sheer Madness, former federal prosecutor, former federal prisoner. These days, he's the deputy director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. Hello there, Andrew. Hello, Frank. Great to be with you again, man. It's great to be with you. Thanks for coming in uh, this early in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in. I came in last night to the city. It was sixty-two degrees at eleven p.m. and it's been a, you know about a week since I've been in the city, and I miss it, man. Uh, well, so we are seeing some disturbing news uh, this week: U.S. drug overdose deaths reaching another record high as deaths from fentanyl surge. An estimated. 105,752 people died of drug overdoses in the 12-month period ending in October of 2021. That's according to the CDC. About two-thirds of those deaths involved synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, a stronger and fasting and faster-acting drug than natural opiates. Uh, Andrew, what's the story here? Why? Um, where did this fentanyl come from? It seems like f- five, ten years ago, I never even heard of fentanyl, and now it's the driving cause of a lot of these drug overdose deaths. Right. Well, my friends and I, um, you know, joke gallows humor really about what happened to the good old heroin. You know, now it's heroin 
if it wasn't powerful enough, it's 50 times more powerful. It's causing deaths. It's a, it's an epidemic, and uh, COVID-19 added to that. Uh, people became more and more depressed, isolated, um, typically starts with pills, uh, pain meds in the medicine cabinet, and it turns into something uh, uncontrollable, as you know it did for me you know, a long time ago. Um, but it's a serious, serious problem, and it's not getting the press, I think, that it was for a while. Uh, I thought President Biden, not a huge fan, but I thought that he did a good job in his State of the Union address. He brought it up. He's putting a lot of money into it, a lot of resources into it, and I think he's doing it wisely. We have some audio from uh, President Biden's State of the Union address. This is uh, President Biden last month addressing the, uh, the drug overdose crisis in this country. First, beat the opioid epidemic. There's so much we can do. Increase funding for prevention, treatment, harm reduction and recovery. Get rid of outdated rules and stop doctors and, and the, that stop doctors from prescribing treatments. Stop the flow of illicit drugs by working with state and local law enforcement to go after the traffickers. And if you're suffering from addiction, you know you should know you're not alone. I believe in recovery, and I celebrate the 23 million, 23 million Americans in recovery. So uh, is there anything that you think is missing from the Biden plan at this point? A couple things I think are missing. One, I I think he hit key areas, first of all. I think um, interdiction is a huge piece, uh, especially on our borders. So he's put money towards that, approximately $11 billion towards uh, new interdiction efforts. Uh, He's taken off some of the restrictions on physicians to prescribe um, medication-assisted treatment, so buprenorphine, methadone, those sorts of things. We're seeing a change, or we've seen a change here recently in the treatment field towards um, harm reduction. And that's basically, you know, you can't treat somebody who's dead. So if there's a way to keep them alive long enough to help them get into treatment, uh, you know, embrace recovery and stop the, the addiction. My view is this. There's a stigma still around addiction and mental health. They go hand in hand. You look at mental health, you can almost always find addiction, vice versa. I think we have to put more emphasis on good quality treatment. There's a there's a ton of treatment places, a ton of options for people. And there's a handful of really, really good ones that I've seen um, and sent people to uh, over the course of the last eight years or so that I've been in the field. For instance, um, there's one that I found recently that I really like. It's North Palm Beach Recovery Center. I don't work for them, um, but I know that they're very effective. I've sent a few people there. Uh, One was a first responder, um, police officer from Westchester County, uh, and he did amazing. So the focus has to be on quality treatment programs, vetting out the bad ones, vetting out the unscrupulous ones, and and. You know, I don't know if it would be appropriate for Biden at that point to bring it up in the State of the Union sure. address, but you have to go after the crooks out there because they're taking a lot of families' fortunes. Um, the crooks in the recovery treatment area, you co- mean? Correct. I see. Correct. And then so when you have, you know, good places that, you know, that I've seen and worked with, they do amazing work and they're in it for the long haul. They're in it for, with the families. There's a strong family component to the treatment. Um, you know, 
I mentioned North Palm Beach. So, I mean, EMDR, CBT, these are the things, evidence-based treatments that have to be effective. And there's other good outfits out there as, as well. What we did at NCAD recently is we set up an 800 number. It's a toll-free uh, 24-hour confidential helpline for people suffering from addiction. And we help place them at, at, at appropriate treatment levels. What's the number in case people want to take advantage of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, 1-855-501-2250. Now, uh, one more time. Yep. 855-501-2250. And you're going to get a live person on the phone immediately. It's so interesting what you said about the crooks in the recovery treatment uh, arena. How does a family, how does a person know if the recovery treatment facility they're, they're using is an effective one or it's just interested in their insurance money or, or their own money? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things to look for. Number one, it's, and it's very difficult for people who have no idea what to look for. You can go online and you can see some wonderful websites and, you know, people, some centers put billions of dollars into their marketing efforts. Well, I would say millions of dollars into their marketing efforts. So look for the following things. Are they using evidence-based treatment modalities like EMDR for trauma, CBT uh, for behaviors, understanding behaviors, challenging thinking? Also look for this. This is critical. Strong family component. Because the family addiction is a family disease, and it affects everybody around the addicted person. Um, a strong program, treatment program, you know, it, are not going to shy away from bringing the family in. That's a critical component. Uh, there's other things to look for. Are they are they good with communication? Um, can you get in touch with their counselor? Are they keeping in touch with the person that referred, like their PCP, their um, physician or therapist? Uh, so communication, look for that. You know, it's one thing to write a check or to submit your insurance and never hear from them again. That's a red flag to me. You're a veteran as well. You served in the Air Force and in the Marine Corps. We've seen a lot of problems when it comes to veteran suicide. We've also heard a lot about the problems uh, in recent years at the uh, VA hospitals and the VA health treatment facilities. And I've heard anecdotally that uh, sometimes for cost-cutting reasons, they would avoid doing surgeries, things like back surgeries, neck surgeries, knee surgeries on veterans, and instead give them prescriptions to painkillers, and in doing so, create scores of drug-addicted veterans who start taking these medications as prescribed because the VA didn't want to do the proper surgery, and then end up down this perilous path. What is that addressed in the Biden plan at all? Number one. And number two, is that something that you've seen as both a veteran and somebody that deals with the uh, addiction sphere? I have seen it for sure. And I work with veterans uh, every week um, with those exact issues. The VA years ago uh, was taking a lot of hits, which it should have. And it's at the highest levels. I want to uh, Make a point here, the people on the ground at the VA working, the people in the front lines, some of the hardest, most dedicated um, people I've ever met, and they're in it for the right reasons, and they're helping veterans day in and day out. You know, President Trump did a lot for veterans, and he did a lot to clean the house within the VA. Um, I think it's one of the credits to his presidency. 
So um, we are seeing a change with that. But there was a time, and I, in you and I remember, um, I appeared on you know Fox and Friends talking about this because there were seventy seven thousand veterans addicted to opioids. Mm. They're starting to steer away from that. They still have to treat you know pain medicate you know or pain rather. They still have to be able to prescribe medication. Uh, but our veterans, you know, to me that's a protected class. You know, they come back from fighting wars. Um, we need to take care of them. We need to take care of their families. So we need to make sure that, you know, we're keeping an eye out for addiction and putting the money into helping them, regardless of what what that amount is. Now, that's coming from a veteran. So, you know, I'm a little bit biased, sure. but I can't imagine anybody. What role uh, Narcan, which helps people not die from overdoses, is playing in the current crisis. Why, with Narcan being so prevalent and knowledge of it being so uh, widely available to the families of addicted people, why are we seeing the number of overdose deaths still tick up, even though this Narcan is so readily available? So for your listeners that don't know, uh, you know, Narcan is basically an antagonist that's going to wipe the receptor, the opioid receptors clean. So if somebody overdoses, then it basically wipes their receptors clean. The opioid stopped it taking effect and it, redu- it uh, reverses the overdose. What people don't understand is that more powerful heroin or higher doses of heroin, certainly heroin with fentanyl, oftentimes one administration of Narcan isn't enough. I know people who've been Narcan six times, seven times in a row by, by first responders. So it wipes the receptors, but only for so long. Mm-hmm. So you have to get the person to the emergency room. The, it's it, it's kind of quizzical to me. Narcan's available, training's available on how to use it. I carry a Narcan kit with me when I travel and and one in my glove box in my car. So we have to be ready for that. You know, and why are the overdoses on rise? It, it's not necessarily related to the use or non-use of Narcan. It still goes back to the biggest problem, and that's the stigma. People are not speaking up about their problems. They're not speaking up about addiction because they don't want to be judged. You know, so the more that we can talk about it, the more that we can say, look, it doesn't read resumes. Addiction affects everybody. Speak up about it. Ask for help. Going back to, and if people are just tuning we're talking with Andrew McKenna. He is the deputy director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. Also the author of a, a terrific book called Sheer Madness, which is uh, one of the best memoirs I've ever read. It's available on Amazon and uh, wherever you might get your books online. Going back to the issue of fentanyl, which is being reported as one of the driving factors in so many overdose deaths. Why what, Why wasn't fentanyl a big deal when you were addicted to heroin? And how do a lot of people these days start taking fentanyl? Uh, is it is it a, just a function of constantly looking for a greater and greater high? Or is it is it uh, gotten to people for the first time some other way? I think fentanyl came about as a matter of supply and demand. Heroin use was on the rise back when, you know, I hurt my back in the Marines I got addicted to pain medication. Those ran out. Eventually, I ended up turning to the street for heroin because the withdrawals were just awful. They're painful. It's hard to explain. 50 times, you know, the flu. And I think that people, um, opportunists, looked at that and said, well, if people like to get this high, certainly they'd want to get higher. Let's figure out a way to manufacture fentanyl, 
efficiently and sell that on the streets. So you have two groups of addicted people, in my view, two groups of addicted people, one who don't want anything to do with fentanyl uh, because it's so dangerous. And then you have people that are so far along in their addiction, they're literally in the compulsion stage. They've lost their free will to whether to use or not, and they're looking to get higher and higher. So it's opportunism. It's really capitalism in a sense. Um, but it's pouring over the borders in Mexico. It's coming in through Canada. It's produced in in uh, warehouses in Mexico and China and here in the United States as well. So fentanyl, it, it's scary. It's really scary stuff. Um, we have to get back to the root of the problem. What are people running from? What are they trying to escape from? Life's difficult. You know, I have a son who's a teenager, a wonderful, wonderful kid. And um, thank God you know, I'm in the position I'm in because I understand the importance of reaching out sure. for help, talking about your feelings. We weren't taught that as kids. You know, those sorts of things. What are people running from? What are they escaping from? Get to the root of that, and then you're going to find your answer. Uh, you are the deputy director these days of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. What exactly is that? What does your group do? So we're a nonprofit organization. We've been around for t- um, 20 years under the um, – the guidance of Joan Bonsignori, who's just this wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful leader, um, really a visionary. And she carried on um, the vision of Marty Mann, who found National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, um, you know, years and years ago. Joan picked up the ball in Westchester and just ran with it. We provide education to the communities, education and prevention to schools, um, colleges, individuals. The other thing is we have a school. So KSAC, I don't know if you've heard of this, is the Credentialed Alcohol Substance Abuse Counselor. Uh, that's in a 350-degree or 350-hour uh, educational program so people can become drug and alcohol counselors. Unbelievable level. I'm so proud of what we do. It's just an unbelievable level of education and people can come to us and they do. I think we're the finest school in the United States that does that. And so providing education is key to our mission. Very quickly. uh, We only have about a minute left and and I realize it's an unfair subject to bring up with only a minute left, but we heard a lot. We have heard for years that a lot of the heroin, a lot of the fentanyl, a lot of the other synthetic opioids are coming across the border. I don't want you to uh, wade into any political controversy or you know take a position on anything polarizing. But as part of the problem with the uh, the increased supply of these these available drugs in this country due to a border security problem. I think it is, but I think we have to be very careful, and I'll make this. Sh- Quick, but there's a lot of people coming across the border that have absolutely nothing to do. The vast majority of people coming across the border are coming across in a state of desperation to find a better life. You have uh, opportunists in Mexico, drug cartel leaders uh, that are using these people, in many cases mules, but they're coming in in aircraft, submarines, ships, you name it. Uh, but that's definitely a big part of it. Andrew McKenna, uh, check out his book, Sheer Madness. And uh, if you are or know someone that's in need of some help, um, they can help you. The number, again, is 855-501-2250. It's a confidential ho- uh, helpline, 855-501-2250. 15 seconds of fame where you can come in on any subject you like for 15 seconds. Straight ahead. W-A-M. 
WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Time for you to be heard for 15 seconds by dialing 800-848-9222. We have two open lines. Use them, 800-848-9222. You, too, can be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Jack is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jack. What happened to my boy Frankie Russo, the twin brother of Curtis Leva, and my girl Jessica Julio? Did I miss it so much? <laughs> Happy Patrick's Day. Larry in Brooklyn. Yes, uh, Putin has bluffed us into thinking he is crazy. The only thing that will save Ukraine now is if we bluff him into thinking that Biden is crazy. That shouldn't be too hard, given Biden's current state of mind. Jim in Manhattan. I use the NJ diet, and I'm happy to report I gained 150 pounds in three days. Anthony in Edison. Uh, Yes, good morning. I think we should tell Mr. Putin... In 72 hours, we're going to declare a no-fly zone. Everything west of the line from Kiev to Odessa. And I know all 29 countries, but the United States will defend it. Thank you. Anna. Yeah, the Nakai, if you're by yourself and you have no one to install the phantom, you're going to die. Because it has happened to me and to other people that I know that we I have installed the Nakai in them. You know, within seconds, you're dead. Joe in Forest Hills. And finally, Joe and Bensonhurst. You hung up on me. I called about the World's Fair. You lost a fan and a promoter. Well, you had seven more seconds left here, Joe, if you want to use it. That's it. Goodbye. There you go. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. If you want to uh, stay in touch, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. It's St. Patrick's Day. We have a full day of St. Patrick's Day programming coming your way. The WABC Early News is next. Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.